Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. All right, all right. Everyone, thank you. Thank you for joining me again. Another solo episode today. Surprise, surprise. Although Kyle's back. Uh, Kyle's back now, so we'll be doing some more uh, of the uh, regular routine. Uh, but I'm getting back to Maps of Meaning uh, Part 3 today. I was thinking about how many parts this might end up being, trying to cover Maps of Meaning. And I'm going to try to wrap it up in six, which makes this the halfway point. Um, we did a little introduction um, in the first episode. We talked about the mythological landscape. Um, the second one, we talked about chaos. So so that's part of the mythological landscape. If you guys remember, Jordan Peterson is, um, again, from a psycho, psychologist perspective, excuse me, um, he's basically talking about the world and the way we experience the world um, in a way that is like we present them in myths. And the idea is that our lives are a story, and the myths that we tell are like the story of our culture. So we have a story um, that's our own personal story, and we have stories, or a story, let's say, um, that is the story of our, again, not of ourselves, but of our country, of our time, you know, of our era, um, you know, of our culture, something like that. So when we're talking about uh, whether it be the individual or the society, that um, we can basically understand it like a story. And that's the natural way that human beings understand. Uh, And we'll talk about that more today. Uh, But the idea is that there are characters in the story. Um, And if we abstract the story as much as we can, we basically end up with three characters that we can't get rid of. We can kind of consolidate them all into these three. Uh, The first one is um, the great father. Um, that's what Jordan would call order, and that's the topic of today's episode. Um, last time we did Maps of Meaning, it was chaos. It was the great unknown. Um, so we've got uh, the known, or order, we've got the unknown, or chaos, and then we have the knower, or the force that mediates between them, the thing that goes into the unknown and creates known out of it. That's you and I, guys. Consciousness. Uh, but today we're going to focus on order. And, and Jordan talks about this in the, kind of this piece of the book, which is leading up right towards the middle. He, he talks about this in a, a particular way. He says, the world that is order. So when we're talking about order, uh, we're, talking about, we're talking about the world, reality in some way. And you can, you can I mean, it's not difficult to understand. I mean, the things that we understand, are the things that make up our experience, that's the world. That's, that's made up of the things we understand. 
It's also made up of the things we don't understand, and we can't get rid of the unknown, but the things that we use, the things that we reference, the things that we that represent our day-to-day, um, that's territory that we've explored. It's the known, the people we know, the places we know, the ideas we know, the um, behaviors that we know. It's not like we wake up, uh, you know, at any given day and decide to go out and behave in a way that we're not, that, you know, that's completely out of the ordinary. It doesn't work that way. So we live and exist in this thing called, called order. And Jordan's going to say the world that is order. So I'll have to describe why he's making a distinction here. And he does say that, he does say that we create the world. He calls it though the world that is order. So we create order. Well, you know that's not a uh, dramatic statement. That's what we do. We create order. We we clean up our room. We we organize things from large to small. We uh, we efficiently pack our our suitcases and, and you know arrange things in the right order. Putting things in order is what we do. We put words in order to make sentences. We put paragraphs in order to make books. That's what we do, guys. We put things in order. That's work. Um, but it's work that we're particularly apt at. It's work that we particularly like. Why is that? Uh, why do we like order? Why do we create it out of chaos? Um, this is really to the to the heart of Maps of Meaning and to the heart of mythology in general. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And, and again, Jordan says that the world that is order, we create that. And that's kind of going to be the theme today. What does that mean? So I'm going to open it up with a quote here from Maps of Meaning, and Jordan says, When we explore, we transform the indeterminate status and meaning of the unknown thing we are exploring into something determinate. So, you know, again, fancy way of saying something simple. So he's just basically saying that when we explore something, when we go out to to encounter the unknown, that what we do is we we take this thing that has no... It has no meaning or substance because it's unknown to us we go out we experience it and we and we turn that unknown thing into something known this is just a kind of strange way of talking about that process that we go out we encounter something we've never encountered before we learn about it and and in in learning about it in exploring it we turn that thing into uh something known and and that is materially different than the unknown you know, the unknown is not something that you can use. It's not a tool. It's not an obstacle even for that matter. It's completely unknown. It's, as Jordan, as Jordan would say, it's, it's kind of everything all at once. You know, if, if you don't have a determinate meaning, it kind of means everything all at once. And this is kind of goes back to the way he's describing an encounter with the unknown, how it, um, you know, like using an example of like an animal that comes into contact with a predator. And what you do is you freeze. You can't, you can't act. You can't do anything because you don't know what to do because you don't know what the thing is that you're, that you're encountered, that you've encountered. Um, so it's just, it's this, uh, you know, uh, staring at Medusa's head, let's say from the Greek myths, you look at Medusa in the eyes, you get turned into stone. It's an example that Jordan's referenced before to make a connection between that, that rat that's frozen in fear when it smells the cat um, and again, this the story that we tell in, in the Greek myth is you're going out to fight the, the, the demon, the monster, Medusa. Um, and when you encounter her, you turn into stone, you freeze, you cannot act. So it's something like that. And when you, and when you know something, when you've explored it, you change it from that thing, that thing that freezes you and turns you into stone. You change it from that to something, something else, something, 
you know, it could be anything. It could be, it could be a tool, it could be an obstacle, it could be something to eat, you know, whatever, whatever that unknown thing is that you've encountered, once, you've, once you know it, you change it from this terrifying thing into something specific. You know, when it's terrifying, it's kind of nothing or, or kind of everything all at once. You know, I don't know that, that there's much of a difference between those two things. And then when you figure out what it is, then it's manageable. Then it's something that you can incorporate into your world. It's something you know what to do with. Um, I'm trying to think of an example um, of something that we that we don't know what to do with. Um, you know what? Maybe maybe space is something like that. You know, like you look up at the sky at night, and there's space filled with stars. We don't exactly know what space is. Um, you know, scientifically, we don't we don't exactly know what it is. We've talked a little bit about that before, but you can imagine looking up at space, and you know it exists. It's something, but to a large degree, it's unknown. So it's not entirely unknown, but just as a good a good enough example, you look up at that blackness of space, that canopy of dark above you at night. We don't really know what to do with it. We don't really know what we can do with it. You know, we can't. We we don't know how to harness empty space. You know, we can move through it, but that's about it. You know, we don't really know enough about it. And it might be possible for us to know more about it. That allows us to do more with it. And then instead of just being like the backdrop of the drama of our lives, the, the drama of the earth, you know, the background to this spinning sphere in space, instead of that, you know, then maybe space will become something else, something like a tool, something like an obstacle, something that we can use and incorporate somehow more deeply into our lives. So there's a connection between knowing something, you know, turning something into know, the known and being able to adopt it uh, or incorporate it into your world. That if it's something you don't know and you don't know how to behave with it or, you know, in its presence, as Jordan would say, that it, it really can't it really can't be a part of your life. In fact, it can't be a part of the world. And it and it kind of blends in with all of the other things that are like that. And so that's what Jordan calls the great unknown. You know, everything that's unknown, and there might be an infinite number of things, and they're all very different from one another. But because they're unknown, they all kind of bleed together into this black monster that hides in our subconscious that we're, you know, that we don't know what to do with. It's not exactly true to say it doesn't exist. But it is sort of true to say it's not exactly part of our part of our world. So what the hell does that mean? All right, let's get into it. Um, so when I read this first quote about Jordan saying that when we explore things, we transform them from something that's indeterminate, you know, that what it is and what it means is unknown. It's indeterminate. That when you when you encounter it, that you change it from something like that into something de- determinate. Well, that makes perfect sense. But it makes me think of something else, something from physics that we've talked about before. Um, it's something that Niels Bohr uh, has talked about. Um, wave function collapse. And I, I don't want to have to rehash the details of it, but in a nutshell, Niels Bohr is one of these um, OG physicists. From, you know, He's one of those guys that was you know, uh, contemporaneous with Einstein. And one of these guys that, that first formulated quantum mechanics, quantum physics. And Niels Bohr said something fucking awesome that I am still trying to wrap my head around, but I, I, I love it. He said that, um, that there is a, there is a formula, a mathematical formula that describes the cosmos, that describes reality. It's something called the, the wave function. And that, and that, that, 
And that that wave function, if you look at the math, what it basically is telling you is that things don't exist the way we think they do. They exist in this, oh, he, he says a probability wave is what he says. But basically what he's saying is that, you, that there's all these issues with physics when you look at the smallest levels in this quantum world that we can't explain, at least, at least using the, the rules and laws that we use to explain you know, our day-to-day lives and, and the physics in the world, that it's, it gets really squirrely there. And on the, on the quantum level, it's like everything exists as, as potential, like it could be, but it, but but it's not exactly. It's very weird. Like an electron could be here or there, but it's not really either. It, there's a probability that it might be here or there. It's all this weird weird stuff that's uncertain. And you might have heard that uncertainty principle talked about in physics. So, but this is the idea in a nutshell that if the world is a wave function, and what that means is that everything is this sort of cloudy, uncertain, you know, unformed potential, and that's how I understand it. Even though in physics, they talk about uh, probability because it's because it's mathematical. Um, I, I'm 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 going to use a related word. I, I think it's more accurate. Probability doesn't really mean anything outside of mathematics. In the world, it's potential. It's something that could be. And and what Niels Bohr says is that when you observe a quantum system, so when there's consciousness involved somehow, that that consciousness acts on the quantum system. It's like observing something is doing something to, to the system. It's interfering with it or it's becoming a part of the system. It's really interesting. So what happens when you do that? What happens when you look at the world that is potential? When you do that, you collapse the wave function. This is what Niels Bohr says. This is amazing. I'll just explain to you um, what he's saying. He's saying that, oh, I'll give you a ridiculous example. Um, I look away from the sun and what's there up in space where I'm not looking is some sort of potential. And when I look up at it and observe it, that potential collapses back into the sun and it becomes the sun again. It's very weird. Now, he doesn't say what I just said. I'm just using a ridiculous example to, to paint the picture. He doesn't say that when I don't look at the sun, that the sun doesn't exist. Um, but what he does say is that there is somehow there is consciousness involved with things existing in a certain way. Um, and if you removed consciousness from the equation somehow, that what you would have is nothing that exists in a certain way. You would end up having something more like what the mystic experience tells you objective reality is. You've got this one thing kind of behind your perceptions that is simultaneously everything. It's the potential for anything to exist. Um, it's that probability wave that physics talks about. Um, and so when consciousness observes it, it collapses the wave function into something certain. So this is what this is what it makes me think of when Jordan says you go out into the unknown. So you're going out into potential. And, it, and what, is, what is potential? Jordan says it's something that means everything. It's undifferentiated meaning. So that's kind of what you're looking at when you walk into potential, when you walk into the unknown. It's like you're surrounded by infinite potentiality. You're surrounded by a substance that, whatever that is, that can become everything. It's anything. And, uh, and it takes consciousness, just like, just like Niels Bohr said, the knower, as Jordan would say. So the knower, the consciousness, goes into the unknown and creates from it the known.
And Niels Bohr would say, consciousness observes the quantum system and turns it into reality, collapses the, the wave function. So I have a really hard time thinking that Niels Bohr and Jordan Peterson aren't talking the same along the same lines here. One from a psychologist's perspective and, and one from a physicist's perspective. Amazing. All right, Jordan goes on to say uh, that the animal, so he's talking about, um, you know, you and I, but he's, he's not just talking about mankind. He's talking about all animals, you know, down the phylogenetic chain, as he would say, all the animals that ever were and ever will be. He said, the animal builds its world of significance from the information generated as a consequence of ongoing exploratory behavior. So what's he trying to say? He's just saying that when you go out into the unknown, um, that's the exploratory behavior he's talking about. When you encounter something you've never encountered before, that you build your world of significance from that exploratory behavior. So you, you generate information from the unknown, and you use that information to build your world. Um, he calls it the world of significance here, but, but what he means here is the world of meaning, and he's already called that the world that is order. So either way, we're talking about the same thing. The world of significance, this is the, wor this is the, the way that I observe the world, and I attribute meaning to the things that are in it. You know, that's not necessarily the same thing that the world is by itself, objective reality. Whatever it is, I mean, we don't really have an experience of that. We're only ever encountering the world from our, the perspective of our, of our self, you know, our ego, our consciousness. We don't really have any idea what the world is objectively. Uh, we know what our sense experience tells us, and that's it. So he's saying that that world, it may not be the real world, you know, whatever that means, but it is the world of meaning. It's the world to us. It's our world our subjective world, our inner world, what he's going to say, the world that is order, okay? So it's the orderly thing that we exist in. Um, you know, we don't really have a way of knowing what that is. Maybe it's all happening just in our heads, but it seems like it's happening, you know, outside of us and inside of us at the same time. And whatever that is, that world that we exist in, um, he's saying that we somehow build that world. We build it from the information that we get when we encounter the unknown, so it's kind. Of, I mean, we're, this is going to make more sense as we go through this. But I mean, trying to think of a, of an example here, you know, like this is silly, but whatever. The first time you see the ocean, you know, I was six years old. The first time I saw the ocean, went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, on a family trip, and uh, we pulled up at the hotel right there on the on the beach. And I see the water, and I jump out of the car, and I run to the ocean, and I jump in it. Um, it's funny, you know, I never saw the ocean before. I didn't know what to do with the ocean. But when I saw it, I was completely in awe of it. This, this seemingly endless, the biggest, biggest goddamn swimming pool I ever saw at that age. Um, and what happened, though, is that I now had this understanding of the world that I didn't have before. And you might say that my world changed the first time I saw the ocean. And this is, again, this is probably a silly example, but whatever, I'm too deep to, to, to change it now. So you can imagine that a little kid, six years old, living in uh, America's heartland, you know, there's nothing but, as far as I'm concerned, there's an ocean of cornfields all, all around me. I lived in a city, you know, in an ocean, like an island floating on an ocean of cornfields. You know, my, my perception of the world was not land surrounded by this vast ocean. It was the city I... I lived in, surrounded by country. You know, that was the world to me. 
when I took this trip, I realized there was a lot more country that I was aware of. And when I ran into the ocean, I realized that it stops. The land stops. There's this boundary now. And there's this whole other thing, this endless deep that surrounds it. So for me, the world of significance, the world that is order, my internal world changed when I saw the ocean. So this is some idea. Like you, you, can, you can say that I built a new model of the world with this new information that I got, which was, hey, the ocean exists. <laughs> Look at it. It's amazing. So now I have to, now I have to integrate this idea and, and make sense of it in my worldview. So my, the world, that my inner world here, the world that is order for me, I literally built it. I changed it with this new information that I got by having this encounter with the unknown. And for me, this, you know, Atlantic Ocean was, was the unknown. I'd, I'd, I'd never seen it before. I never encountered it before. So to try to give you some way of, of understanding this, and, we'll, and hopefully it'll be more clear in a minute. And so Jordan says um, further that when, when an animal actively explores something new, it changes the sensory quality and motivational significance of that aspect of its experience. What does that mean? So we remember, you know, Jordan Peterson talking about motivational significance or valence. He's just talking about kind of the emotions that, that are evoked when you encounter something, you know. It does something have a positive or negative emotional value to it, an experience or an object. You know, what does it make you feel like? Um, so when you explore something, it, it takes on new meaning to you like that, you know, the, the, the emotional significance of it. it you know, you kind, of, you kind of earn that by experiencing the thing. And then it's sensory qualities. You know, this obviously you, you experience something and what are you experiencing? The way it looks, the way it feels, the way it tastes, the way it smells, whatever. It's sensory qualities. So you take something that's unknown to you and you are able to attribute to it all of these sensory qualities and also any emotional significance that it might have. Um, you know, maybe it's a gun. You know, maybe that has certain motivational significance to you. You know, maybe it's uh, whatever. You know, you get the idea. Maybe it's a valentine from your sweetheart, a different kind of motivational significance. So I think what he's saying is that by exploring or experiencing something, that you change the emotional reaction to it um, from the one that you have with the unknown. So we've already talked about that, but I'll repeat it. When you encounter something that's unknown, you have that Medusa turned into stone moment. What's the emotion that's associated with that? Fear, anxiety, and curiosity. Because you kind of want to know what the heck's going on. You want to know what this thing is that's, that's made you freeze, that you don't understand. You know, there's fear, fear and anxiety there because it might be dangerous. But there's curiosity there because it, it might be promising. So this is what he's saying um, uh, about, about encountering something and, and changing its motivational significance. Um, so you change that um, motivational um, significance or emotion that you, that you would otherwise have to the unknown, which is fear and curiosity. You change it into something else, and um, whatever that is. I mean, if it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that was unknown to you, that you're, um, you know, you're not going to be fearful about that uh, once you've explored it. You're going to be curious about that, and when you, when you take that first bite, you're, you're going to be happy you did. <laughs> so uh, so uh, anyway, he goes on to say, this means that the animal exhibits a variety of behaviors 
in a given mysterious situation and monitors the results. So if that, if that behavior is fear and anxiety, you know, that frozen behavior, that exploratory behavior, that cautious behavior, that that eventually, um, you know, again, when nothing kills you, that that caution kind of goes away and you start to explore it more. So your behaviors start to change. You poke around at it. You move around it. You, you look at it more closely. You, you, you know, you interact with it. You pick it up. You put it in your mouth, whatever. Um, and so you just, as you're, as you're exploring, as you're behaving differently with this unknown thing, you're picking up more about it, learning more about it, and you're just seeing what happens. And as long as nothing bad happens, you keep doing that. You keep exploring. So Jordan says, it is the organized interpretation of these results. So the results of whatever this behavior is that you're, that you're uh, you know, uh, that you're using to try to understand this new thing. Um, that you, uh, it says it's the organized interpretation of these results and the behaviors that produce them that constitute the world, past, present, and future, of the animal, in conjunction with the unknown. You can't get rid of the unknown, but the things that you do know, that they're built from this information that you've that you've that you've generated by exploring. So he's, you know, what he's saying really is that our subjective world, our subjective world, the world that is order, it, it's just. It's just maps of meaning. So there's a throw throwaway to the name of the of the book. Um, that it, it's stored memory of the meaning of objects and situations. That the objective world may be arguably independent of that. You know that we don't really know what the objective world is like, but the world that is meaning, the world you know, the world that is order, our internal world, our subjective world. God, how many words can I use to describe it? That it's really just. Um, it's really just a way, a way for us to store and navigate um, order, the known, what we've been able to, to harvest from the unknown. We organize that and we remember that. We remember what things mean and what situations mean so that we can reference them in the future. If some other situation or object comes up that, that's not as familiar to me or that's completely unknown, I'm going to use what I do know to try to understand that. So this is what he's getting at. Here's where it gets interesting. He says... He says, it is not too much to say that the animal elicits the properties of the object, sensory and affective. So the way it looks and the way and whatever emotions might be attached to it, or even brings them into being, he says, through its capacity for creative imagination. So he uses the word elicits here. And I don't know what that makes you feel um, or, or kind of what that means to you, but I'm going to read this again. He says, it is not too much to say that the animal elicits the properties of an object. So I'm the animal. I'm the conscious thing. I go out. I experience the unknown. Whatever properties that I'm discovering for this unknown thing, you know, whatever it is, the way it feels, the way it looks, the way it tastes, what it can be used for, um, how it makes me feel, all of these things about the object, that I elicit them from the object. What does that mean, Jordan? Elicit means it's something I bring forth from it. It's like I am involved with what properties this thing has. He doesn't exactly say I've given it those properties, but he says I elicit them from it. I bring it out. So, you know, again, I'm just imagining, going back to where we started about this wave function and the idea of uh, objective reality being this potential, whatever that means, this thing that's potential that can become whatever there is, that I encounter this potential and that I can, 
that I elicit from it whatever comes into being, that I bring from that potential the way the, this object and the way it is and what it means. And that's something that consciousness brings to the object or brings out from the object. It's not that an object tastes a certain way or is a certain way. I mean, it's strange to say, but all by itself, it's not like that object has properties exactly. It's the fact that I'm observing it that brings those properties out. And that's, it's hard to make sense of when you think about color and shape and size because it kind of seems like those things exist whether consciousness is involved or not. Like if no one is there to see it, it still has size and shape and, and all that. Uh, but maybe not. And it's more clear when we look at the, as Jordan would say, the affective part, the emotional part. You know, like if I find a new thing and it's something that's useful for me, it's something I, I can use to, you know, get food or something. Um, the emotions surrounding that are very positive. You know, this th I have this thing and I'm so happy that I have it because I can, I can use it to get what I want in some way. So this thing is prized and the emotion that I have associated with this tool is positive. It's, it's you know, I don't know what words to use, but a positive emotion, right? Whatever that might be. Um, I I elicit that from the object. It's not like the object is good. It's just good because I have it in my hand and I, it's useful to me. That's why it's good. It's good to me. It's not good by itself. And what Jordan is saying is that its sensory properties are like that as well. I mean, boy, uh, where my mind goes here is something like this. Suppose I have a an unknown object and it has a shape. And I said to you, if I'm not looking at it, there's not a conscious creature there to experience it. It still has a shape. Still, still exists in that shape, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Because, you know, this is where you got to get philosophical when you start asking questions like, what the fuck is a shape? What is a shape? And where does it exist in the world? Um, or does it exist in the world? You know, um, a shape is something that's got a ma mathematical description. It's something that, um, it's something that has fixed rules. Um, where, where does, where does that exist? Where does, where do those fixed rules exist in the world or in my psyche? See, this is what I mean. It's not even, it's not even certain that the sensory properties of, of an object are real exactly. That so much of this stuff might might be, as Jordan puts it, elicited, brought forth from this potential, uh, and that that's being done by our consciousness somehow. And it reminds me again of the wave function collapse, collapsing potential back into something certain. I don't know what it means, man, but it is interesting. All right. So this next bit, uh, we can change gears a little bit. Um, and Jordan starts talking about how so we're talking about consciousness, obviously, and how it how it's used to build the world, you know, the, the, our, in our subjective world. You know, for all intents and purposes, the only world we know, the world that we exist in, the world that we only experience through our minds somehow, that that, that world is built, constructed from, from consciousness. But that consciousness, it's, it's, it's limited by biology. So it's like um, you can look at something simple like a, like a slug or, or something like that and compare it to something really complex like a person. And you can see like, you know, what the consciousness of a slug is like, what's it, what it's capable of is probably pretty limited compared to 
my consciousness, this, this much more complicated consciousness. Um, right? Probably. Why is that? So he, this is where he's going to say, look, consciousness is limited by biology. You know, it's coming from your brain and nervous system. It's, that's what's facilitating your consciousness. We know that because if you damage your nervous system or your brain, you damage your ability to, to express consciousness. Um, so, so there's some connection there. And, and he, you know, he's a scientist, so he wants to talk about this. He says, animals that are relatively simple compared, say, to higher order primates, including man, are limited in the behaviors they manifest by the structure of their physiology. Okay, you know, fair enough. If you don't have arms, you can't, you can't touch things. If you don't have fingers, you can't touch things. If you don't have eyes, you can't see things. Okay, fine, fair enough. He's saying that that limits, um, that the limits of your sense capacity determines how complex or kind of what the character or qualities of the world are that, that, that are available to you. And I think that's what he means about when he says elicit them that you're bringing those characteristics into the world and only the characteristics that you're capable of bringing into the world. And if you're a slug, those characteristics are going to be pretty limited. If you're a person or a, you know, a dolphin or something, maybe they're, maybe they're way more complicated, way more complex. Um, so the, the question is something like this. It's like, is the world the slug is living in, in the world that I'm living in, is it even the same world? So there's a way in which you could say, yes, of course. And there's a way in which you could say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, so this reminds me of a, a reference that I used in an earlier podcast, and I can't remember all the details. It was a documentary that I was watching once upon a time. So you guys may remember this. I just can't remember the documentary, uh, the, the name of it. But it was about, at least the beginning, it was about the evolution of the eye, the thing that you see from you know, the eyeball. And it's talking about how um, when it first happened, you know, like the beginnings of that, it were these single-celled creatures in the ocean, you know, whatever, hundreds of millions of years ago or billions of years ago, I don't know how far back, but way, way, way back in evolution. Um, and that these single-celled organisms developed the ability to um, sense light from the sun. And so you can you can see that that eventually became like, Photosynthesis. Plants can use uh, energy from the sun to make food, and they ha they can't do that until they can pick up the light from the sun. So, eventually, these primitive creatures figured out a way to photosensitive cell is what basically what they developed a way of a way of detecting the sunlight, and that when they did that, that that the world changed from a dark place with no boundaries or objects or anything to all of a sudden a place that's that's distinguished by light and dark. So that those cells, uh, they weren't complicated enough to be able to see much, but they could see light and dark. And so the question is, before that they were able to detect light, was there such a thing as light and dark? And Jordan's basically saying, well, no. No, that's something that was elicited from the world um, by this creature that adapted a way to, to, to see this, to, to experience this. And that was that photosensitive cell. It developed it, and bam, the world is now not just dark. It's dark and light. So this creature has created, you might say, light. Its world now has light. Um, so that's kind of what I mean um, 
and, and then you can see in this documentary that you've got these simple creatures that can only see light and dark beginning to get more complicated. And now they can see other things. Now they can, now they can see boundaries. Now they can see depth. Now they can see color. So what's happening as the eye is getting more and more complex? What's happening? Is the eye getting more complex and seeing more? Yes. It's harvesting more information from the unknown. Yes. What is it doing with that information? It's creating more to the world, right? Because now there's borders and colors and shapes and things and depth, and space. There wasn't before because I, didn't, I couldn't know them. I couldn't know them. It's amazing. It's like, it's like they're, they're, the more you're able to know, the more information you can abstract from the unknown, the more complicated your world becomes. And it's more than that, though. It's like, it's like once I know that there are boundaries, then I can, then I can detect those boundaries. So if I'm, a, if I'm a creature floating around in the water and I find this boundary that I, I couldn't see before, I used to just bump into it and just move on. I didn't know what it was. Now I can see it's a boundary, it's the beach. What do I do then? Well, I don't know. Maybe I climb up onto that beach. Maybe after a, t- after a time, I'm finding other food there. I develop a way of breathing the air, and I stay on the beach. Now, the, now what's happened to the world? The world used to be water, and now it's water and land, and it's all of this other potential that's now available to me because I could, because I could experience more of it. And it begs the question... If we can experience even more of it than what we can experience today, what does that mean about the world? What does it mean? It seems to mean that there will be more to the world once we, once we have those experiences. There'll be new information. And it's not so simple. It's not so simple. It's not like, yeah, I know, I know something more I didn't used to know. It means way more than that. It means that I've discovered the beach. I've discovered this whole new world. Um, and, there's, and there's things that can be done with that new world that couldn't be done before. So I can do things I, I, did, I didn't used to be able to do. And so it means something way, way more than just knowing something new. And it's not clear to me whether there's any bottom to that. And that, that goes back to the mystic experience. Uh, ho- hopefully we'll talk about that in more detail in a bit, but I don't want to get bogged down. I want to keep going. So we're talking about higher order primates here that are able to explore the world more than the slug. You know, whether it be me or a chimpanzee, we've got fingers and thumbs, we can feel things, we can pick them up, we can do all sorts of things to explore that a slug can't do. So I'm harvesting even more information because I can explore in a different way. So he goes on to say when he's talking about comparing like what a rat is capable of versus like a like a higher order primate, like a man or a chimpanzee. He says, higher order non-human primates have a more developed grip, which enables more detailed exploration, and in addition, have a relatively sophisticated prefrontal cortex. This means that such primates can evoke more features from the world directly, and that they are increasingly capable of modeling and acting. So before he was using the word elicit, now he's using the word evoke. Both they mean they both mean the same thing, uh, but it's interesting interesting use of language. So again, a conscious creature who's able to explore something unknown when they do that, they're eliciting or evoking 
features from the, the unknown, information from the unknown that they use to model the world, that they use to act in the world. Okay, makes perfect sense. It's just interesting that the perspective is that consciousness somehow pulls that information to the surface from this potential, whatever that is. Um, and that with that information, we can, we can build the world, we can live in this world that we've built, and we can act in the, in the world that we've built. Whew. Boy. Oh, boy. Okay, that's amazing. Here we go. Um, Jordan says, more sophistication in development of the prefrontal centers, he's talking about the brain, means heightened capability for abstract exploration, which means the capacity to learn from the observation of others and through consideration of potential action before they emerge in behavior. So here he's saying that the more sophisticated the brain's getting, it allows you to explore in ways that don't even require exploration exactly. He's calling that abstract exploration, but he's saying, look, you can learn things from the world by looking at other people and learning from them. You don't even have to do it yourself. And if a creature can't do that, like, you know, perhaps perhaps none, none could before man, or at least before higher order primates, that, um, you know, that they didn't, they didn't even have that way of exploring. And so we have this whole other way of exploring that doesn't even require a hands-on approach, let's say. And not even that, not even about learning from others. I can learn from potential actions, from thinking about acting, from fantasy. So I just imagine, you know, like I'm a, I'm a uh, 12-year-old kid in uh, sixth grade, and there's this um, pretty girl who sits at the desk next to me, and I really want to really ask her out on a date or something, and I don't know how to do it. So put yourself in that position. I might sit there and think, oh, I could say this, or I could do that. Oh, you know, how might she respond if I say this or if I do that? Oh, that's silly. I sh if I say that, she's going to think I'm a nerd. I can't do that. This is what he's talking about, that you can learn from running these hypothetical scenarios through your mind and, and, and using your, your faculties of reason to figure out whether th those actions are valuable. So you can explore in your imagination. You don't even have to explore in, in the world. What does that mean? The information you're getting is the same in the sense that you're using it to build your world. So what's the difference between exploring the world and exploring your imagination? Well, maybe, maybe little or nothing. And if there's no difference between exploring the world and exploring your inner world, what, what does that imply exactly? Think about that as we, as we keep going here. Um, so really, he's just saying that increased capacity for sense experience and for abstract thought, which is like a whole other way of thinking, it allows our models of reality, which are, the, which are our representations of the world, that's our inner world, the world that is order, to be more sophisticated. This allows us to act more successfully in the world, um, you know, to explore the unknown in greater and greater depth. And I really don't know that there is any bottom to how deep it goes. Um, and it, and it, the reason for that, it's like it's an intuition, really. But the reason for that goes back to the mystic experience. And it is that if everything is one, you know, if, if, if that is what the objective reality is that we're trying to get our hands on, whatever that, that thing is I'm going to call the one, um, 
God, you know, consciousness or God, for lack of a, of a better term, um, that that is potentiality, like we were talking about when we were talking about physics earlier and the wave function, that whatever, whatever the objective world is, it's, it's potential. It's something that can become anything. So is there a bottom to that? I can't see, I can't see how there is. I can't see how there is. So what that, what that seems to mean is that there is no bottom to the information that we can, that we can harvest from, from consciousness, from the unknown, from ourselves, you know, in a manner of speaking. Um, so it's like, you know, as long as we can find ways of exploring more deeply, uh, and we, as long as we continue exploring and continue learning, that there's never going to be a bottom to that. And so our world can be continually built and then transformed from that information. And all we have to do is keep harvesting it. And in doing that, we change the world. And that sounds abstract and maybe it sounds hippy-dippy. But think about it. How many times have we, abs- have we harvested information from the world and used it to recreate the world? I mean... The internal combustion engine comes to mind. The internet comes to mind. Fire, for Christ's sake. Cooking your food. All of these sorts of technologies. Um, even, even culture and society is something we developed. Even that allows us to experience deeply, more deeply than we could without it. This is what I mean. And so the question is, what kind of world can we build? And the answer seems to be, anyone we want something like that <laughs> all right so jordan jordan says this he says action and thought produce phenomena action and thought produce phenomena I, I, I agree with that he says novel acts so new types of actions and thoughts necessarily produce new phenomena i'm on board jordan creative exploration concrete and abstract is therefore linked in a direct sense to being. This is your subjective world, the world that is order. Increased capacity for exploration means existence in a qualitatively different, even new world. This argument implies, of course, that more complex and behaviorally flexible animals inhabit a more complex universe. So this is him trying to explain what he means by that we build the world from this information that we harvest from it, from the unknown. And again, again, basically the question that he's asking is, do you believe that the world a slug inhabits, that the, that the reality that they exist in is the same as the one you exist in? He's saying qualitatively, it's so different that you would, that you would be correct in saying that they live in a different world. So consciousness creates the world that it exists in. And the more complicated that consciousness is, the more sophisticated the world that it exists in is. Whew, boy. All right, all right. I think that calls for a change of direction here. Um, all right, so Jordan Peterson, he, uh, he's a psychologist, so he always wants to connect back to all this philosophy anything he can about the brain and the uh, structure of the psyche and that sort of thing. That's the science part. And he talks about something called the humunculus. 
homunculus. Any Harry Potter fans out there probably heard that word before. Homunculus. Fun to say that word. Anybody know what it means? It's a Latin word, I think. It means little man. Little man. So you might wonder about that. What the heck is it? Um, all right. Harry Potter had something on this, but, uh, but let's talk more from JBP's perspective. He says, it is structure and organization of the cortex. Not simply mass or even relative mass or surface area that most clearly defines the nature and reach of a species' experience and competence. More particularly, it is embodiment of the brain that matters. Okay, so that's really important. He's saying it's not about the structure of the brain or the size of the cortex or uh, the, the, um, uh, you know, the uh, folds in the, in the gray matter, which is something that they talk about. Uh, it's not. It's not about all of that, really. That that uh, seems to make a difference in how complex something's consciousness is, or their experience can be. It has much more to do with how the structure of the brain correlates to the body. So he said it's about embodiment of the brain. So he he goes on to say that brain structure necessarily reflects embodiment because the body is, in a primary sense the environment to which the brain has adapted. So that, that makes the hair on my arm stand up because I don't know what it means exactly, but it seems super important. When he says that the, that the brain obviously has evolved and changed just like everything else in your body over time, he's saying that that evolution of the brain are adaptations to the body. The brain exists in the body, so its environment is the body. So how it's changing is, is being driven by the body, changes in the body, let's say. And it reminds me of something that Jordan said uh, on one, in one of his lectures. He was saying that, he was saying something like, if you have an idea about the world and it's, and it's wrong, that it will lead you astray, obviously. And if you rely on that, that you're, you're going to be sorry. And he says that it's, he says that it's, it's a way of living in formation with the world. You know, I say in formation like, like military jets flying in a formation. This is what I mean. Like, he said, he, he said that, um, he said that if you have an idea about the world and it's and it's correct, that it's in formation with the world, that the model you have of the world is accurate. So you can use it and you can rely on it and it's honest and it's, and it's going to, you know, it's going to be reliable for you. But if it's a lie that you're relying on and it's not information with the world that it's going to, you know, take you down the wrong path, it's, it's going to cause suffering and pain. So that's, that's coming to mind here because he said that the brain works best and that it's more sophisticated when it, when it embodies, um, when the brain embodies, you know, it's an embodiment of the, of the, of the body. Um, and so it's like the brain has to be in formation with the body in a way. And, I, and let, me, let me keep going because I'll, I'll flush this out a little bit. He says the body is specifically represented in the neocortex. So there's a part of the brain where the body is represented. So there's some, there's some structure in that part of the brain that corresponds to the body. That's what I mean by it's represented in the body. So you've got this piece of the brain that was evolved and developed. This gray matter, and you know how a brain looks. Whatever it was that created that thing, it was created specifically to represent the body. Well, how do we know that? 
this is what this is what they call the humunculus, this part of the neocortex that represents the body. And there was a doctor Jordan talks about named um, Wilder Penfield, who uh, he was an like early neuro, you know, surgeon, I guess. Um, and he would he was the one that mapped the homunculus by opening up the top of somebody's skull and playing around very carefully with different parts of the brain with these little electrical shocks. So he's going in and he's stimulating every little bit of the brain. And, and he's, and he, the, the person, by the way, who's getting worked on is awake and telling him, you know, what they're experiencing. He's like, Oh, he'll give you a little shock here. Can you tell me what you're experiencing? Well, I can taste something in my mouth. How about this? You know, what are you experiencing here? Oh, I can't see my, my vision's gone black. You know, he's able to find if I touch here, if I touch there, this is, this corresponds to, you know, the, the, the sensation of your fingertips. This, this corresponds to, you know, fear it makes you feel afraid. So he's able to basically map out to some degree, um, the pieces of this neocortex that correspond to the actual body. This is what, again, science will call the homunculus, the little man. And, and Penfield found that it comes in two forms. There's a motor homunculus and a sensory homunculus. So there's one that controls, you know, your body and how you move, and there's one that controls your senses. He's talking about the motor homunculus here, and he says it's an interesting little figure. He said it might be regarded as the body, insofar as the body has anything to do with the brain. So it's the part of the brain that that is responsible for your feeling of control and sensation of your body. He says it's useful to consider the structure of the homunculus because it is in some profound way representative of our essential nature as it finds expression in emotion and behavior. So he's like, there's something we can learn about ourselves more deeply if we can study this homunculus, this thing in the brain that's, that's embodiment of our body. So he says, if you look at the homunculus, you're going to see that the hand the hands and the eyes, the spot on your brain that represents your hands and your eyes is exaggerated. There's way more of it than, than there is anything else. And he says that this enabled Homo sapiens to manipulate things in ways that are qualitatively different from those of any other animal. We have that hand-eye coordination, the real sensitive ability to move, move things around in our fingertips and feel all the little, you know, subtle, uh, you know, features. So Jordan says that the individual can discover what things are like under various voluntarily produced or accidentally encountered conditions. He's like upside down, flying through the air, hit against other things, broken into pieces, heated on in fire, and so on. So we can, we can see more about uh, what things are because we can do all of that stuff with it. He says the combination of hand and eye allowed human beings to experience and analyze the emergent nature of things. So I'd be remiss to point out that is not a um, primitive idea, by the way. That, that, that's exactly what we still do when we're trying to understand things. Um, you know, if I want to understand what, you know, what something's made of, I can break it apart and see, see, that, see what it's made of. We're still doing that today. We just do that in a different way. So hitting things against one another and breaking them apart to see how they're made, we do that today with the Large Hadron Collider. We do that today with atoms and the components of atoms. When we were cavemen, maybe we were doing that with rocks and, and bones and whatever. We're st the point is we're still doing this. And this, so, you know, it's, it's something that's really fundamental part of our humanity, exploring in the way that we explore and, and generating the world, the, the human world, the way that we do. It's unique. So Jordan says that the human style of adaptation 
extends from the evidently physical to the more subtle psychological. The phenomenon of consciousness, arguably the defining feature of man, appears related in some unknown fashion to breadth of cellular activation in the neocortex. Bodily features with large areas of cortical representation are also therefore more thoroughly represented in consciousness. So the structure of the brain determines the limits of consciousness or how it represents the world, something like that. And he also says something interesting that we just read where he's saying that, um, that basically how much do we know about consciousness? And, and he's saying here kind of very little. And he, it's, not, it's not really all that clear, but when he says that uh, consciousness appears to be related in some unknown way to cellular activation in the neocortex. He's basically saying, look, there's one certain part of the brain that has a certain type of activity, and we think that has to do with consciousness somehow. Like, that's, that's about all we know about consciousness. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you knew that, but that's unbelievable. It's a, it's a real-life, actual mystery. And he's saying that bodily features with large areas of cortical representation are more thoroughly represented in consciousnesses, which is why he's saying that in the homunculus, the hands and the eyes are exaggerated because human beings rely you know, really heavily on our sight and we can see very well. And we, we, we also rely very heavily on our grip and our you know, dexterity of our fingers and holding things and that that takes up more space in our brain um, because we can do so much with it. And that's why it looks that way if you look at the homunculus, like it has very big hands and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, all right, he goes on to say that uh, this can be made immediately evident by contrasting the capacity for control and monitoring of the hand, for example, with the much less represented expanse of the back. So he's just saying, look, close your eyes and imagine your hand. Imagine the way it looks. Move your hand. See how you can feel the way it moves, how you're aware of it, all, both sides of it, all the little intricate movements. You're aware. You can feel all of that. Now try to do it with your back. There's almost nothing there. And he's saying the reason for that is that the homunculus has, has almost no back. You look in the brain. It's like there was never an evolutionary reason for me to have consciousness of my back. At least not much of one. So I have very little representation of it in my brain, and it kind of doesn't exist so much in reality to me. It's always ignored, and I can't really feel it and don't really have any, you know, intricate control over it. Not like my hands. They're a much more evident part of my world. All right, he goes on to say, Consciousness also evidently expands or sharpens during the course of activities designed to enhance or increase adaptive competence during creative exploration. So processing of novel sensory information activates large areas of the neocortex. Okay, so we know that the neocortex seems to be related to consciousness and there's, you know, activity going on there, you know, that we seem to associate with consciousness being awake, let's say. But he says that that activity also kind of goes crazy when we are exploring something new. So that's also linked, this creative tendency to this idea of consciousness. Like when we're exploring we're more conscious than normal, something like that. So your brain responds to order uh, to embody the new information. You know, you, you encounter something novel. Your, your, your brain responds to that. That's why you're seeing this um, increased activity of the neocortex. And it does that until it can embody whatever this new information, if it, it wants to integrate that into the model of reality or, you know, something like that. Um, interesting. Because we just know so little about consciousness and how it works. It's interesting. 
All right, so then he makes a point here that um, that intrinsic pleasure of an intense nature appears to accompany the activation of cortical systems during exploratory behavior. And that operation uh, appears to be mediated in part by dopamine, which, if you don't know, it's the neurotransmitter involved with producing um, positive emotions that have to do with reward. So cocaine is a good example. Uh, dop- dop- dopamine um, antagonist, I think they call it. So there's a intrinsic pleasure that comes when we explore things. It feels good. It feels good in a cocaine kind of way. It's something that reinforces the behavior of exploring. It's like um, we've, we've been adapted to behave that way. Um, I explore. I get good emotions, positive cues from the exploration. My body's like rewarding me for it, and it makes me want to continue to explore. So that's what we human beings are exploratory creatures and we even have this thing built in uh to kind of ensure that that happens um and i can't help but read that uh you know we've got this intrinsic pleasure from exploring this dopamine release and i you know i've got two young kids at home so i immediately think of a line from the disney movie moana where uh where Moana, uh, she finds this cave where these giant boats are kept, and she realizes that her people used to go out on the open sea and explore new things, and she's so she's so excited when she finds this out. She runs out to the to the village and to her grandma, and she's screaming, "We were voyagers!" And she's thrilled, and that's that's the truth. We are voyagers, and where we're voyaging is into the unknown. And that reminds me of uh, a different Disney movie. Um, probably don't have to tell you the name of that one. Into the Unknown. Anybody? Frozen? Frozen 2? Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, moving on. All right. So Jordan says, um, he says spiritually, but then he also says psychologically. He kind of means the same thing, and, and we did mention that before. So he says spiritually, psychologically, man is characterized by the innate capacity to take true pleasure in such activity. Our physical attributes enable us to endlessly elicit new properties from previously stable and predictable elements of experience. The object, any object, serves as a source of limitless possibility. All right, so this is really interesting, and it kind of ties into some stuff we've already talked about to some, to some, uh, to some degree. Um, the idea that consciousness... Um, that, that consciousness is something like potentiality, what, something that can become anything. And that, to me, that's really what material reality is, or objective reality, is this potential, whatever that means. Um, and if that's the case, if it's limitless possibility, and Jordan's saying that you can find that in any object. And the idea here is if, if, if objective reality really is something like free-floating potential, um, then, then any object is absolutely limitless possibility. Um, and this is why even explored objects, and he's saying, you know, something that's previously stable, anything you already know, that even that can become a source of new information. Um, you know, it's like we, all, we, we knew about atoms uh, before we were ever able to split an atom. You know, we, we invented an atomic bomb. Uh, we knew about the atom, and then we found out we could split it, and we had this whole new world, you know, this nuclear energy and nuclear weapons and this whole, this whole new area of the world that, that opens up to us. And an atom, you know, for that matter, um, it can literally become anything. You know, an atom, um, the only thing that's different between one and another is its, uh, 
structure. You know, you add some more electrons to it. Uh, you add some more, you know, whatever protons to it or neutrons. I don't know how it all works, but you do, you change the structure and you can make anything you want. That's, that's all there is to it. And Adam literally is limitless possibility. Um, kind of like, kind of like stem cells, you know, think about human stem cells, you know, gives rise to us, gives rise to all this complex differentiated, you know, organs and cells and systems in our body, but it started out as a cell that could become anything. This is kind of what I mean. You know, what a stem cell is, what potential is, is merely a matter of how they are structured. That's, that's order. That's what this podcast is about today. The world that is order. All right, so Jordan goes on to talk about latent information. Latent information. So I call this section latent information. What in the same hell does that mean? All right, this is, this is the name of this piece here. It's try to make it brief. Um, so there was a story that I, uh, that I heard on a show recently. I think it was Stephen Hawking and a couple of guys that he works with, physicists, that were talking about black holes. And there's this paradox with black holes. And it's that when, when, when anything gets in its proximity, even light, it gets sucked into it. So even light can't escape a black hole. And this is this weird paradox where in physics they say that light contains information. Now, it's still not clear to me what that is, what that means. But something like the the frequency and wavelength of the light, um, it contains that information, information about the about the frequency and wavelength, and that seems to be more like significant than I can, can I, than I can imagine. I, I haven't been able to put this all together, but there is seemingly, from a phys- physics perspective, information in light, and that it cannot escape the black hole, even it. So what happens is you have information going into the black hole and never coming out. And so there's this paradox that has to do with, um, I guess, like the, like the um, uh, Newtonian laws, like energy cannot be created or destroyed. So what's happening to this information? It seems to be being destroyed. It's going in. It can never come out. So there's this paradox here about information. Um, and so I want to I bring this up in the context of what we're about to talk about. Um, and then, and then you guys might remember from an earlier podcast where we we're talking about the senses. Kyle and I were talking about all the various senses, and we were saying that, you know, we have these things that we see and hear. We have these phenomenon that we experience, like our senses. But in truth, what's going on in our brains are is the interpretation of information, and the information is coming from the vi- vibration of energy. If it's, you know, electromagnetic light coming into your eyes, or if it's sound energy coming into your ears, that that. All it is is an interpretation of the electrical impulses that are coming into your body. Uh, that stuff gets communicated, and somehow your brain turns it into sensations, you know, the things you see and feel and touch. So there's this idea of information there that's, that's, that's basically being interpreted by your body to make the world. So, again, these are just two things I want to plant in your, in your ear before we start talking uh, this next bit. All right, here we are. So Jordan says, simple animals inhabit a world where most information remains latent. This, this is where we get to this idea of latent information. So you can imagine if we, if we learned about an atom and you know, okay, well, atoms have a certain structure, they're organized in a certain way, and when they are put together like this, they create compounds, and you know, when, when compounds are put together like this, then it becomes, you know, whatever. You can see how the world is created from these atoms. You know something about the atoms. But there's information in there that you don't yet have, which is that 
if you split the atom, um, it releases a tremendous amount of energy. So now you have to understand what that means. Now you've invented nuclear bombs. And up until that point, that information, it was still there in the atom, but it was unknown. So it was still latent in the atom. Even though we had a bunch of information about the atom, we knew lots of interesting stuff about it. Maybe all that, that, that there was to know about it, it in our minds up until the point we realized we could do this new thing with it. Okay. So, so this idea of latent information, and it, it seems like how sophisticated consciousness is determines how much of the information can be harvested from the object and how much remains latent. And it reminds me of this idea of junk DNA. I mean, you guys may have heard this before, but there's this, uh, you know, you guys know about the Human Genome Project and how many, how many letters there are to the human genome and how, how much effort it took for us and how many supercomputers it took for us to finally map out the uh, human genome. We've got tons of it, okay? And most of that DNA, we don't, we don't know if it does anything. Uh, we call it junk DNA. It doesn't seem to code for any proteins that do anything important. It doesn't seem to do anything. And so that's why we call it junk DNA. And so what, what we ended up finding about junk DNA is that there are instances where it gets turned on or off. So you've got this DNA in there that it doesn't seem to be doing anything. And then you find yourself in sub-Saharan Africa and all of a sudden you've got this junk DNA that didn't used to do anything that's now helping you, helping your body to fight malaria. And it's like the conditions that you put yourself in turned on this piece of DNA that used to be unused junk. So you can imagine that as, as latent information, even in your own DNA, that it, that it, it can get turned on and, and do anything, potentially. So you even have that, have that situation even in your own body in your own being. Um, that, just, that just hasn't been turned on, or as Jordan would say, it hasn't been elicited or evoked from you yet. That's really interesting. So, it, it, you know, again, it, it seems to describe um, consciousness as potential. And uh, again, you, you can use the analogy of junk DNA or, or a uh, stem cell or whatever you want, but something like that. And then Jordan goes on to say, human beings can manipulate with far more facility than any other creature. Um, and that's true. We can explore and manipulate things in, in more, better, better, you might say, than any other creature. So it's our representation of the world, ours, human beings' representation of the world, that is the most accurate, meaning it most accurately reflects how the world really is. Uh, it's probably still... Um, you know, incredibly flawed, but it's better than any other creature's experience of the world or representation of the world. And the reason is because we can explore the world more than any other creature as far as we know. So we can generate more information from the unknown and we can build a more complete inner world that we exist in. What we experience as the cosmos, again, is the most accurate representation that there is. Any other animal, let's say, would have a less sophisticated representation. More information would be latent. Less information would be, you know, um, reflected in, in, in your experience. Um, okay, so reality is endlessly complex, like, like we talked about. Potential, there's no bottom to it. So there's always more that can be represented more accurately. So our representation, even if it is the best, it's incomplete, it's unsatisfactory, it's wanting. 
Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine the subjective world um, that that's created in the psyche of a different type of creature, like a super advanced alien? Let's say they have entirely different sense organs, or maybe more sense organs than we have, or something. Um, what what world would they exist in? What, what what must the world seem like to them? I wonder. Do you think they exist in the same world that you and I do? I don't know. That's the thing. At this point, I I don't know. And you know, and it maybe it maybe it explains um, the analogy some people make when when they're afraid, like let's say of alien invasion, uh, or even alien contact. Um, it's like the way that human beings treat a colony of ants. You know, like an ant. I, I don't have any understanding of their subjective world, and so they don't. An ant is something that that I could kill, I could crush with my hand, and not even think much about. Or I might ignore it entirely because it's just a it's just a nuisance to me that walking across my uh, picnic blanket um, that that you know alien creatures with a much more advanced uh, biology and a much more complicated consciousness, let's say, they might look at us like that, like something that's um, a nuisance and and something that can be ignored. Um, or again, they might look at us as something that cannot be understood and is a, and can just be smashed and killed without regard, like I would to an ant at the picnic. So it's interesting, um, you know, that that an alien in that context, you know, um, they they really do live in a world uh, different from the one that I live in, and they hold so little regard for it that they might just they might just smash me like an ant, something like that. All right, so Jordan goes on to say, we have been able to discover more aspects of the world. So he's talking about from, uh, by learning from one another and by learning from ourselves abstractly, we can, we can uh, learn more about the world. And as he says, it seems to me more accurate that new procedures and modes of interpretation literally produce new phenomena. So if I figure out a new way of doing things uh, or a new way of looking at things, that even that creates a different world than the one that I had previously experienced. Like it, in a real way, and he uses the word literally, so in a real way, it changes the world around me. And then he goes on to say, the word, and here he's talking about truthful speech, and he uses the word. The word enables differentiated thought and dramatically heightens the capacity for exploratory maneuvering. The world of human experience is constantly transformed and renewed as a consequence of such exploration. So he's saying, hey, we can communicate to one another about our experiences and our models and our representations of the world. Well, how does that, how does that kind of fit in? And he says, in this manner, the world constantly engenders new creation. So it's like the way somebody else sees, sees the world. If they can communicate that to me, and it, and it makes sense, I have to incorporate that somehow into my understanding of the world. Um, so there's like a mutual building of the world. Now, it's not just something I make myself, but I make in partnership with every other living thing. Something like that. Uh, so the way I look at this is, you know, like the creation of the world, if you want to put it that way, in the context of a, you know, in the beginning, let, 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 the, let there be light kind of situation. That the creation of the world, it, it, it occurs somehow within our psyche. You know, this is what Jordan's saying. Um, using the information that we that we glean from from consciousness from the unknown. Now Jordan 
Jordan talks about this more like in his lectures. He talks about this in his biblical lectures, so not in Maps of Meaning, but he talks about it at length where he talks about the Word. He, he, again, he goes going back to the Bible. The Bible calls that Logos. So he talks about that. It's like sp- spreading, um, communicating between consciousnesses is what he's talking about and allowing one to benefit from, from the other and relating this idea to creating the world. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. And it's even connected to Jesus because Jesus is called the Word made flesh. So there's a lot more we can talk about in terms of uh, logos or the word, but he brings that up here uh, in the context of um, how we create the world. Next thing he does is he kind of shifts, he shifts to the brain. So he wants to talk a little bit more about the brain, and he's talking about how the brain represents the world that is order, so our subjective world that we exist in. He, talk, he's, he begins talking about the right hemisphere. So he's like, the right hemisphere, it has an aptitude for global pattern recognition. So that's one of the key things that the right hemisphere of the brain is doing. It's recognizing patterns. He says it helps ensure that a provisional notion of the unknown event, if you encounter something unknown, um, that might be rapidly formulated. So he says a provisional notion. He's talking about a representation of the unknown that you create in your imagination. He calls it a fantastic representation or a fantasy representation. Uh, so you, you, you encounter something unknown, and what you do is you create this, this image in your head that represents this unknown thing. Um, and, and again, you piece that together with the stuff you already know, and, and, and anything you can link to this unknown thing, you will, so that you're trying to understand it as quickly as you can. He says, the right hemisphere's hypothesis is always this, that this unknown is dangerous, and therefore partakes in the properties of all other known dangerous places and all those that remain unknown as well. So anything that's unknown kind of gets lumped in to everything else that's unknown. And all of that stuff we, we consider dangerous because we don't know how, we don't know what it means. It could be dangerous. So we're just going to treat the unknown as if it's dangerous. He said the for, uh, this form of information processing, uh, which he describes A is B, so one, one thing that's unknown is dangerous, so another thing that's unknown is dangerous. He says, is the generation of metaphor. So this is the beginning of metaphor. He says that the generation of metaphor is key to the construction of narratives, dreams, dramas, stories, and myth. So the idea here that our right hemisphere is... Um, it's allowing us to kind of make some sense of the unknown using, using fantasy images in our, in our psyche and trying to make connections or relationships between those things and things that we actually know already. That this idea of this metaphor generation, that what it does is it's somehow involved in creating stories. And that's, again, that's the way we look at our own lives as a story. And even the story we tell about our, um, you know, beyond our lives, the lives of our, of our culture, the lives of our nation, that those things are captured in stories also. We just call those history or myth. He goes on to talk about the right hemisphere. He says it can, it can, um, it can use forms of cognition that are more diffuse, more global, and more encompassing to come to terms initially with what cannot yet be understood but undeniably exists. So the right hemisphere is a special kind of, of pattern recognition and thinking that allows, it, it's much more abstract, basically. He goes on to say, the right hemisphere uses its capacity for massive generalizations 
uh, and comprehension of imagery to place the novel stimulus in an initial meaningful context, which is done a priori. So again, before you've even experienced this unknown thing, he's saying that the right hemisphere of your brain is doing something to abstract enough to place this unknown thing into a category of some kind. And it needs to do that. It needs to have a, a, some sort of categorization or some kind of structure so that, it can, so that it can explore it and know it. And without that structure, again, without that structure, what it's looking at is potential. It's that Terminator 2 substance we talked about that, that could become anything, that liquid metal substance. Whatever it is behind our experiences, it means everything all at once. So the brain has to put it into some, into some context, uh, it has to put some walls up, and it does that even before you've experienced the thing. This is what Jordan is talking about. Um, this is that orienting reflex that we talked about in the earlier earlier episode. Um, and so the right hemisphere is doing all of that. Uh, the right hemisphere remains concerned with the question, what is this new thing like? Meaning, what should be done in its presence, Jordan says. It doesn't care what the thing objectively is. Just what it means. That's the most important thing. And, and you know, you understand that. I mean, if you came across a snake and you'd never seen a snake before, you'd have to understand what it means. Danger. It can bite you and kill you. You have to understand that before you can understand what it is. And it, because if you don't, you've thought about it too long and you're a dead man. This is what he means. And Kyle, made a, Kyle made a point about this that in a, uh, another podcast that relates. It's interesting. He said more than once, you know, like we're, we're evolved to survive. We're, we're not evolved to experience the objective world. And even if we were, we, we wouldn't have a way of knowing that. It's like the, the, the things that happen that, sh- that change our minds and our bodies, they're happening to ensure that we continue to, to survive and procreate. That's it. The goal of evolution is to, is to continue the species. It's not to understand how the world really is. And that's something Kyle brought up, and I think it's really important, so I'm going to say it here. Um, I don't exactly know what to make of it, but I think it's true. I think it's true, and I, I, the reason is well, the mystic intuition is basically that that, that that objective reality, that thing that's called God, that potential, it's basically unknowable. It's knowable only in being, and uh, we're going to talk more about that here. All right, so Jordan starts talking about categorization because, again, you, you got to put something in a box, um, even if it's something unknown. You have to figure out a way of, of frantically abstracting it away so that you can have some structure to put it in. You group it with something else so that you can examine it and learn about it. And until you do that, uh, until you have that representation in your head, there's no, there's no thought about it that's possible. There's no exploration about it that's possible. So he says this, categorization according to valence means that the thing is what it signifies for behavior. So again, if you're trying to put something in a box and you know nothing about it, you can at least put it in the same box as all of the other things that make you feel the same way. That's what that, again, he's talking about valence, and valence has to do with emotion. So again, if I encounter the unknown and it makes me afraid and curious, then I can put everything that makes me afraid and curious into that box, and now, even though I know nothing else about the stuff in that box, that's a start. That's the start I need to be able to dive in and explore those things abstractly. Um, and basically, this is how we can define and differentiate objects so that we can understand them. Um, 
you know, and we, and we understand them not by what they are, but by what they mean. So the categories that we can come up with, even before we've experienced something, we can do that. We can do that. We do that by how the things make us feel, that, that emotion or valence, as Jordan would say. All right, she so says, the chaos that constitutes the unknown, that's the undifferentiated potential. That's the Terminator 2 substance I'm telling you that, that I, I believe lies behind our experiences, the thing I'm going to call God or consciousness that can become anything. He's going to call this the chaos or unknown. So let's start over. The chaos that constitutes the unknown is turned into the world by the generation of adaptive behaviors and modes of representation. So we take that chaos, we take the thing I'm calling God, we turn it into our subjective worlds. We build the world out of it that we exist in. Man, what a statement. Okay, I'm going to try to give this some context. Imagine that you're a, that you're a brand new newborn baby. You've just been born. Imagine that. All of the stimulus of the world, you're experiencing, you know, uh, unfiltered. Um, it's all coming in, you know, you can imagine a little baby who's never experienced the world before being born. That's got to be an overwhelming experience, I would imagine. I mean, I can't imagine, but it has to be the most overwhelming thing imaginable. Um, so all the stimulus of the world, it would just sort of bleed together, I would imagine. You know, you never really heard much before. you never seen anything before. Uh, you never felt the air before. I mean, everything that you're experiencing would all kind of bleed together into this experience of unfamiliar chaos, this blur of contextless senses, sense, you know, experience. It would be like chaos. It would be like being born into this, you know, ununderstandable spinning chaos. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like for a baby. Um, until that chaos is tamed into categories within the psyche, okay, once that happens, that quite literally transforms the chaos into the world that is order. Okay? So you can imagine if a baby is, I don't know, I don't know how long this explanation will take, but if a baby is all it's got is like little grasping motions and, uh, you know, little instincts that it does for feeding and for touching, uh, touching things, that eventually it's going to realize, okay, um, you know, there are things that can be touched, like my bottle and my mom's boob. There are things that can't be touched, like my dad's voice. Um, you know, whatever, you know, there are things that can be eaten like, like, like milk. There are things that can't like the, to like my toys, uh, whatever. There are things that feel this way and things that feel that way. So eventually you're slowly, slowly putting up those walls that divide up this chaos into things that are manageable. And once you can manage them, once you can, once you have figured out something about them, those things that you figured out, the thing that Jordan keeps calling information that thing now becomes a part of your world. I mean, whew. Jesus. All right, Jordan, you blew my mind. Let's keep going. Uh, he says, it is, of course, our ability to copy or to mimic that underlies our capacity, our capacity to do things that we do not necessarily understand, that is, cannot describe. It is for that reason, in part, that we need a psychology. So he's basically saying, look, you know, like, you know, babies, humans, and, and primates, and, and uh, you know, uh, what they do, or one of the things that they can do, is to look and see what other people are doing, and, and do the same thing. 
you know, that's how you know, kids are learning when they're playing house or playing doctor or something. They're, they're, uh, you know, they're mimicking their parents or whatever it is. They're, they're, they're acting out a way of being that they don't understand. It just seems fun for them. And so they're acting it out. They're, they're, they're acting out this fantasy. And he's saying that we, that that's something that we absolutely need. Um, it's, it seems like we need to do things that we don't understand. We need to. Because again, going back to the baby being born, you're born into a world, you don't have a choice. You have to do things you don't understand. That we find ourselves in that situation. Um, and that we need to do that in order to form the world that we can understand and exist within. I mean, Jesus. I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at slowly, and, you know, slowly but surely is this idea that, that we're creating the world that we're living in. Um, you know, and it, it, granted, it's in it's our it's our internal world. It's, it's not like we can say anything about the objective world necessarily about this, but the truth is, our only experience is of our subjective world. The objective world is is not a part of my experience as far as I as far as I know. Um, so this this internal world that I exist in, I've created it myself, and my my psyche has done that. You know, kind of automatically. I mean, Jesus. It, I don't know what that means, but it's getting closer and closer to sounding like God in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, you know, creating the world. And, uh, you know, Jordan's helping us to see how this is done, how it plays out in the world. All right, uh, we'll get hippy-dippy for a second. Uh, I'll try here. So this section, um, this section is about those representations that are the world of, of order, the in, internal world that we exist in. Um, and it trying to tackle a characteristic about our representations, that they're, that they're always transforming. Uh, they're always changing. You know, the way that you see the world is always changing. The way that you see yourself is always changing. You see what I mean? Um, you know, over time. So our representations are always transforming, and they seem to be transforming through our experience or because of it. You know, like if I was a, um, how do I put this? Well, I mean, I, I used an example in an earlier episode, uh, something that I call the being generator. And it's, it's just like a little, little bit of a thought experiment, but so it's a way for me to understand, um, it's a way for me to understand God in the world, basically. Um, and it, 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 it's something I toyed around with after I had the mystic experience trying to, trying to come to terms with this. And it's something like this, that consciousness projects itself um, as, as being, as the material world. So the idea is that the material world is nothing but consciousness. Now, consciousness is all there is, according to the mystic experience. Um, so the idea here is that if consciousness is projecting something, what is it that it's projecting? If it is all there is, what it's projecting is itself. So there's this idea of like consciousness experiencing itself, this idea of self-experience or self-consciousness, and that's the thing that you and I experience ourselves to be. Um, uh, and so we can use ourselves as an example, and you can just say, look, if you have an experience in the world, it changes you. It changes your experience going forward. 
So I've, I, you know, I've, I've used examples before, but falling in love is a good example or going through puberty is a good example. It's like the world, the world changes because of this experience you're having with the chemicals that are being released by your gonads. You know, and when you're a teenager, it changes the world and just in the, in, in a qualitatively, um, you know, important, significant way. It ch- literally changes the world into something it wasn't before. Or if you fall and you scrape your knee, let's say something simple, um, you know, you feel the pain, you recognize that there are consequences to your actions. In this case, you know, walking, uh, walking, uh, uh, you know, thoughtlessly or something uh, that you heal from that. You realize you can move on and, and, and uh, have a new uh, beginning and try again, that all of these things have changed your, uh, your being, your consciousness somehow. So the experiences that you have are changing yourself. Okay. So there's this idea of, um, well, we've talked about it before, uh, this fractal idea that the mystic experience talks about, which is something like as above, so below. It's something that it's supposed to tell you that whatever it is that, that God is like, it's something like what, what the cosmos is like. There's some, there's some connection fundamentally. Um, and, it, and it goes back to this idea of projection. It's like if God is all there is, if this thing called consciousness is all there is, and it projects um, its itself, so that it, it so that it can encounter itself. It's doing that in in psyche, the same way that you and I are so far. I've been talking about building the world, that we project it out um, into into our subjective worlds, and we somehow live there. And it feels and seems to us like we live in this external material reality, but in truth, we never experience that. What we experience is happening, you know, filtered through our consciousness. It's happening in our psyches. Um, so there's a connection between God and man in that way. And every time and every time consciousness is changed, whether I'm talking about myself or I'm talking about God with a capital G, every every time consciousness changes, the world changes because because consciousness and the world are just a are just a reflection of each other. They're just a a projection, a self-representation of itself. Uh, that's convoluted and hippy dippy, and I apologize, but um, I have to I have to give you that background, and I'm going to read this next Jordan Peterson bit. He says, "Patterns of behavioral adaptation are generated in the course of contact with the unknown. These patterns do not necessarily remain stable, however, once generated. They are modified and shaped, improved and made efficient as a consequence of their communicative exchange. Individual A produces a new behavior." B modifies it, C modifies that, D radically changes C's modification, and so on, ad infinitum. And then he says, the same process applies to representations. Okay, Jesus. Okay, so he's saying that, um, he's saying that we have contact with the unknown, and that that contact we, that we adapt, we change as a, as a consequence of the, of the contact, which is exactly what I said. Experience changes consciousness. Um, and he says that those representations, they don't remain stable. They're constantly evolving. They're constantly changing. And just like I was talking about a minute ago with this thought experiment of the being generator. You know, it's like consciousness experiences itself and it changes. It experiences that new self and it changes again and on and on and on ad infinitum, just like what, what Jordan said. You know, this is the reason why the world around us is, is constantly evolving and transforming and changing. Um, you might even say it's the reason time exists, because 
experience changes consciousness, and there's this constant process. Um, Jordan is, is, is talking about this in, the term, in terms of something practical like, like technology. You know, individual A produces a technology. Uh, you know, person B modifies it, person C modifies that, person D modifies that, and this is how things are, but it's also how ideas are. And he says, Jordan says that the same process applies to representations, which means that the way that I see the world uh, is changed by my experience. And that might be the way you experience the world, or it might, may just be my experience of you in full stop, that my experiences change, change the world that I create for myself to live in. And that, it's, and that again, it it's extends beyond just my, my own power, but it includes kind of everything else all at once. Um, again, that, that rings of the mystic experience as well, because according to the mystic experience, everything is one. All right, we're getting to, towards the end. I want to do a little bit here called knowing without knowing. So Jordan says, knowing what to do, after all, is classification before it's abstracted. Classification in terms of motivational relevance. So we were talking earlier about um, about. Uh, categorizing something based upon the emotions that, it, that it, uh, it generates in you. So this is kind of what he's saying. Classification in terms of motivational relevance with the sensory aspects of the phenomena serving merely as a cue to recognition of that motivational valence. So here he's saying that something that I see or experience, any, any kind of sense uh, qualities that I get from the world, seeing an object or encountering an object or, or a situation or whatever it is, that those things are really just symbols about a way, about a well, he says a motivational relevance. So they're just symbols about something that I, sh that I should uh, uh, change my behavior or change my uh, representation of the world, that that's all that like material phenomenon are doing. They're just floating around in my field of experience as reminders that I should be, that I should be feeling or behaving a certain way. And you, you can understand. I mean, if I, if I well, t taken a walk uh, through the park and I, you know, I walk right across a bear cub or something, and Mama Bear is sitting there looking at me real, real angry. Um, that the seeing of the bear is simply a cue that I should get the fuck out of there. I should t uh, tuck tail and run. Um, so he, you know, he, he's just saying that there's a there's a sense uh, in which the things that that our sense experiences uh, are, are are showing us the way you know things, the way things look or seem, that those are really just just a symbol. They're just a cue. To, to show me how I should be thinking or, or acting in its presence. It's interesting, interesting way of looking at it. He says, it is certainly the case that many of our skills and our automated strategies of classification are opaque to explicit consciousness. So he's saying here that opaque means we can't really see it. He's, he's saying here that, the, that lots of the things that are automated about how we, uh, that things we don't think about, about how we kind of exist, that a lot of that stuff is not obvious to us exactly. A lot of that stuff is opaque to consciousness. It's, it's happening, but we don't really understand it. Like, um, you know, you don't always understand what makes you afraid or what makes you uh, interested in something, or what pulls you in or, or, or whatever. You don't always know what's going on, even though you feel that pull. So Jordan says, this opaqueness means essentially that we understand more than we know. And I think that that deserves a break, and we just need to we just need to read that again. The fact that our that all these all these things that are happening um, that are kind of automated in our subconscious, you might say, 
that those things aren't obvious to us. We don't exactly know them. We're not, we're not aware of them when they're happening. He says that what this means is that we understand more than we know. And that's, that's true. It's like our body knows to jump away from the snake, you know, a couple of milliseconds before we realize there, it, that it is a snake. So we understand more than we know. He says it is for this reason that psychologists continue to, to depend on notions of the unconscious to provide explanations for behavior. The unconsciousness, the, uh, the psychoanalytic God, is our capacity for the implicit storage of information about the nature and valence of things. This information is generated and modified, often unrecognizably, by constant multi-generational interpersonal communication. So this idea of, of the unconscious, this idea of something that we that's connected to us but is not um, available to us in the same way that our that that the world is, that our immediate experience is, it's hidden from us somehow. This unconscious part of us, um, and that this place, this is the place where the information comes from, that the world can be built from. And Jordan says it this way. He says, "The unconscious is the psychoanalytic god." This is what I mean the source and structure of reality. The, what, what the world that is order is made from is, is information, undifferentiated information that exists in the unconscious. It's, it's somehow a part of us and somehow not. And, and again, this is why he's calling it the psychoanalytic God. It's God. The unconscious is God, for lack of a better word. It's the potential, the place where anything can come from the place that the world, that the cosmos was born from. And you, and you can't deny that. When you look at the world that is order, that's your subjective world. Where did that come from? Did that come from God in, in the Big Bang? Or is it something that you built from your own consciousness? Interesting. All right, he says, he says we watch ourselves act. From this action, we draw inferences about the nature of the world, including those acts that are a part of the world. And so it's interesting. This is kind of it goes back to something like uh, like Heidegger or Hegel, where he says we watch ourselves act. And this is this idea of self-consciousness. It's it's very important. I mean, you say you say that you watch yourself act, and that's true. You know, I, I, what comes to my mind is like people that have um, PTSD because, uh, as Jordan as Jordan will say when he talks about this, you know, from his clinical practice, somebody comes in with PTSD, like you, you know, they're a veteran, let's say, and very often what happens is the PTSD was was uh, brought on by them watching themselves do something that they never imagined they were capable of. So it's one thing if you turn on a an action movie and you watch soldiers slaughtering people innocent or, or, or otherwise and the gore and the terror and the horror um, you know in the western world we call that entertainment um, but when you're actually there in Afghanistan and you and you're shooting an unarmed person for whatever reason and you're watching them bleed out and you're seeing the gun in your hands and the blood on your hands um, that that action of watching yourself do that thing and, and, and that disconnect where you can't imagine yourself ever having done that thing um, this is what causes PTSD um, and, and 
And what he's saying here is exactly that. We watch ourselves act. Okay. So again, um, this is what the soldier's done. He's, he's observed himself do this terrible thing, and he's trying to come to terms with the fact that he's capable of, of, of being a terrible thing, you might say. Uh, and then that, that's what causes the PTSD. But this, this is what I want to get to. When we say the phrase, we watch ourselves act, I'm trying to understand what this means. And, you know, you kind of you get it. I mean, you kind of get it. You can think about your memories. You can think about, you know, the ever-present moment. Like right now, I'm watching myself talk into a microphone. I know what I'm doing, but you always know what you're doing. You're always watching yourself act kind of like you're a third person. And this is what Heidegger and Hegel talk about. This idea of, uh, of your experience being like a first-person shooter, a video game. You're, you're kind of in the driver's seat. You're, you're, the, you're the thing behind the eyeballs. But you're also this, like... Um, uh, what comes to my mind is um, near-death experience. You're also that floating, uh, ethereal version of yourself, floating above, watching yourself act. You're also that guy. You're, you're both. You're the person behind your eyeballs, and you're the person watching you act. And that's true, whether you think, whether you believe it or not. I mean, give it some time. You, you, you are both of those things constantly. You're two, kind of two, two selves in that way. So he says we watch ourselves act, and this is what comes to my mind. And again, I want to circle back to this idea of projection and representation, um, that God, that what, if God is consciousness, what consciousness does is observe. That's what you do. That's what I do. That's what consciousness does. It's aware. It observes. That's what consciousness is. So if God is all there is, and God is consciousness, then consciousness is observing. Again, what is it observing? God itself. That is self-experience. So you have to ask yourself, how is God experiencing itself? Especially if you consider God as infinite potential. If God is all things all at once, it's completely unknowable. It's completely unapproachable, unexperienceable. So how do you experience God? How does God experience God? Well, it, it, it does that through projection. The same way you and I build our own world, our, in, our inner world. It represents itself within itself. That's what I call projection. The same way you and I represent the world in our psyches and live in that world, God represents himself and he experiences that representation. Here's what the mystic experience says about that. That is, that is the most mind-blowing thing I can, I can possibly tell you. That the experience that God is having when it, when it represents itself, it projects that representation so that it can experience itself that what that experience is, is being. It's the material world. So you've heard me say this before. We are the experience that God is having. And I mean that. And I think that is what Jordan is alluding to here when he says we watch ourselves act. How do we do that? We are, we are consciousness that is watching our own self-representation. We're projecting that representation. That's you listening and me speaking. And the part of ourselves is watching all this happen. That, that's, that's the unconscious. That's God. That's, that's the thing that ties us all together. The oneness that the mystic experience talks about. All right. More Jordan Peterson. He says, We know that damage to the right hemisphere impairs our ability to detect patterns and to understand the meaning of stories. Is it too much to suggest that the emotional, imagistic, and narrative capabilities of the right hemisphere play a key role in the initial stages of transforming something in, uh, novel into something thoroughly understood. 
Uh, when we encounter something new, after all, we generate fantasies, imagistic and verbal, about its potential nature. Okay, is it too much to suggest that the emotional, imagistic, and narrative capabilities of the right hemisphere play a key role in the initial stages of transforming something novel into something thoroughly understood? So this is his way of saying something like the images that you see in, um, well, like the, like the archetypic images, like the things that Carl Jung will talk about, the same things we see in our dreams and we, and we read about in our myths, that those are the sorts of things, those images that are laden with meaning, that the right hemisphere is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, flip through like a deck of cards, um, trying to figure out what, what emotion and what, um, uh, you know, what, or, you know what, what meaning um, these images hold that can be linked to anything new, that can help you make sense of something new. Uh, so the right hemisphere is, is involved with that. Um, he says, before we truly master something novel which means before we can effectively limit its indeterminate significance into something predictable. We imagine what it might be. Before we truly master something novel, so before we can understand something new, something unknown, we imagine what it might be. Before we understand it, we imagine what it might be. Okay, our imaginative, our imaginative representations actually constitute our initial adaptations. We provide a framework to enclose, let's say. We enclose something with infinite meaning within this framework that makes the object knowable or experienceable by making it, you might say, artificially finite. And that's done within the psyche, within fantasy. We're imagining it. And what we're imagining is a model. That model is the, is the, is the representation that we've been talking about. That's our subjective world, this representation. So he says our fantasies comprise part of the structure that we use to inhibit our responses to the a priori significance of the unknown. So otherwise, uh, we, we could do nothing but freeze in awe, like we talked about, um, you know, when we're in the presence of the unknown. He says there is no reason to presuppose that we have been able to explicitly comprehend this capability, in part because it actually seems to serve as a necessary precondition for the ability to comprehend explicitly. So this is, this is complicated, but I want to pick this apart. Um, so he's talking about how we imagine something. We, we can form some kind of a psychic projection of, of the unknown. And that we can, use that we can use that projection as a way of sort of confining or limiting the potential of the objective world. This, this thing that's infinite and could be anything and could mean anything. Um, we, we use, we use the, uh, representation, this, 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 you know, faculty of our imagination to kind of put up these artificial walls around the infinite so that it becomes something manageable that we can, that we can use as a part of our world, something that we can understand. And he says that that, that helps change our response to the unknown, which is, which is just, you know, inability to act. It's to freeze, to be afraid and curious, but to not be able to act that these, uh, representations, these these artificial walls that we're throwing up, actually then allow us to approach something like that, something infinite, something like God. Um, and what that is, is our lives and the existence of the cosmos. It's amazing. Um, all right, let's see, what else do I have here? Um, oh, he's talking about how this idea of projection and representation, that it's, it's something that we really haven't even been able to comprehend explicitly. He, he means to say it's something that's hard for us to kind of 
uh, understand that we're even doing it. So it, it seems invisible to us. And he says, and that, the reason is that this whole idea of uh, projection, this psychic projection, this imagination that we're talking about, that it, it actually seems to be a part of our um, ability to think at all. He says it's a precondition for our ability to comprehend. So it's something that, you know, it doesn't seem obvious to you that you're projecting something in your mind. And that's because your ability to think at all is like that. It's wrapped up in a projection. So it, it, it goes unnoticed. It's taken for granted. Um, and I say, I say here that this seems to recognize that the unknown means everything all at once, this idea of, of potentiality. Until its significance, what it means is delimited by our imaginary representation of that thing. Um, we then modify the representation so that, you know, again, we're not going to necessarily nail it the first time when we say, okay, I imagine it's this, it's like this, it's something like this. Well, we're probably wrong about most of that, but we still need to assert that it must be something like this before we can determine that we're wrong. And that, again, f more and more exploration and experience allows us to modify those representations, to continue to change them so that they're better and better and more accurate so that I can, so that I, I can better navigate the world in my life. So the capacity for representation and fantasy, um, according to Jordan Peterson, is necessary to comprehend anything at all. It's necessary to have a world that is order, a world of the world of your experience. Amazing. All right. All right, back to the brain. Um, the uniquely specialized uh, capacities of the right hemisphere appear to allow it to derive from repeated observations of behavior images of action patterns and, uh, excuse me, of, of action patterns that the verbal left hemisphere can arrange into stories. A story is a map of meaning. Again, call back to the title of the book. A strategy for emotional regulation and behavioral output a description of how to act in a circumstance to ensure that the circumstance retains its positive motivational salience. So he's saying that, this, that these maps of meaning that we have, these, um, the ability for us to remember um, patterns, uh, what things are like and how, to, and how to act in their presence, that those things, um, that those things are designed to allow our lives to have positive motivation so that we continue to want to live and continue to want to explore and to do the things that we're here to do. Um, interesting, interesting way of putting it. He says the right hemisphere has the ability to decode the nonverbal aspects of speech, to empathize, and the capacity to comprehend imagery, metaphor, and analogy. The left hemisphere, this is the linguistic systems, he says that it finishes the story. It adds logic, it adds a temporal order, and it makes sure it's internally consistent, all that sort of stuff. So the right hemisphere is just a, is just an explosion of images attached to meaning. And the left hemisphere takes all those images and puts them in the right order and makes a story out of them. And the two things together, the meaning and the structure that the left hemisphere provides it. Those things are what creates the story of your life. And that's how we understand the world and how we understand ourselves. He goes on to say the process of creative exploration. This is the function of the knower, so to speak, who generates explored territory has as its purpose an increase in skill. And he calls this knowing how and an alteration of representational schema, which he, which he calls knowing what 
So I'm going to read that again without using Jordan Peterson's wordiness here. Uh, he says, the process of creative exploration, um, the function of the knower, that's you and I, consciousness, who generates explored territory has as its purpose an increase in knowing how and knowing what. Okay, that makes sense. He says, new sensory input constitutes grounds for the construction, elaboration, and update of a permanent but modifiable representational model of the experiential field and its present and potential future manifestations. This model, I would propose, is a story. All right, I'm going to read that again a little differently. So when we have new, when we encounter the unknown, we have new information. We've harvested that information from our from our exploratory behaviors, as he would say. We've harvested this new information. Um, and so that new information is what modifies our representations of the world. We have to make this new information fit in this, in this you know, s- subjective representation of, of the world. Um, and he says the model of our experiential field, what he's talking about is your, your, the world of your experience, the world that is order, your subjective world. And he says, uh, he says, that model I would propose is a story. Okay. Uh, he goes on to say, it's the right hemisphere which is activated by the unknown and which can generate patterns rapidly. That provides the initial imagery, which are contents of fantasy, for that story. It is the left hemisphere that gives these patterns structure and communicability. The hippocampus notes any mismatch, if, if, any, if anything is not lining up between the way the world uh, is and the story that I've come up, this representation that I've come up with, that the hippocampus, which is one of these old parts of the brain, that it's just going to notice um, if there's a mismatch, which will dis- disinhibit the amygdala. Now, remember, when that happens, your base uh, emotion kicks back in, which is fear. So the amygdala uh, is going to basically inhibit your fear. If it goes away, you're, you're just constantly afraid. So this it disinhibits the amygdala, and what that does is it releases all that anxiety and curiosity. That's the thing we called the orienting, orienting reflex when we were talking about that Sokolov guy from, from Russia, uh, which, which drives exploration. So, um, again, this, this is the way the world that is order, the world that you've created in your own mind, um, that it, this is how it's done. It's turned into a story populated from images, uh, images from your right hemisphere, um, sewn into a tail by your, by your left hemisphere. And then these really old parts of your brain only kick in to cause that exploratory behaviors when it has to, when you encounter the unknown. So he says the right hemisphere under these conditions derives patterns relevant to the emergent unknown from the information at its disposal. And I wonder, I wonder what that means if, if that, if that's what Jordan meant when he's talked about latent information. Um, so you're deriving patterns from these, from the, from the new, you know, unknown, whatever this new experience is and whatever those new patterns are that you're seeing, that this is that latent information. Again, this is what Jordan Peterson says. We elicit, we elicit from the world. So he says, um, he says much of this information is still implicit. That is coded in behavioral patterns. Interesting. So I guess what he means here is that uh, when, he, when he's talking about information being implicit in behavior, he's like, look, you can look at how people behave, how they act. Um, you don't have, you don't have, they don't have to tell you, you know, like uh, whatever the moral code is. You can just see two people interacting and you can, you can um, fish out from their behavior 
um, what that moral code is that they're following how, by how they treat each other. So you can learn a lot just from um, just from how people are acting. So he's saying that there's information that's kind of encoded in how people are acting, and we can kind of uh, harvest that just by watching. He says, it is still knowing how before it has been abstracted and made explicit as knowing what. So our right brains gather and store information unconsciously so that it, it can use it to generate better and better fantasy images or, or models of the world. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't understand them explicitly. Um, understanding is gained by the story or the map of meaning that the left brain organizes from those images. So the idea that information could be latent in behavior, that, that's like embodied, like we were talking about the, the homunculus earlier. Um, that information could be latent in behavior um, or observed in the embodiment and, and not yet um, understood. Uh, I mean, that's interesting. That's an interesting idea that something can be embodied either by yourself or by somebody else. And you can pick up on that. You, you can know what that information is without really understanding that you do. So this is, again, what Jordan said uh, is why we can't really get rid of the idea of the unconscious because because of, th of things like that. And it reminds me of things like information being latent in, in behavior, let's say. It reminds me of, uh, you know, energy being latent in matter. You know, like we talked about splitting the atom earlier. The atom's got all this energy. It's made from energy. And when you split the atom, you release that energy. So there's all this energy that's latent in matter. It, it, it can come from matter, but for now, it's, it's not really there. It, it's in this other form. Um, or even, you know, going back to the mystic experience and saying something like, like the cosmos is, is latent in consciousness. All right, enough, enough hippy dip for now. Um, a little bit more about this knowing. So Jordan says that procedural knowledge, this is what he calls knowing how that that develops long before declarative knowledge or knowing what. We already talked about that a little bit with the idea of a snake, um, that you, you have to kind of know how to run the hell away from a dangerous thing before, you, before your brain even has enough time to know what it is. Um, so he says, uh, he says that develops before knowing what. Um, in evolution and in individual development and appears represented in unconscious form Expressible, expressible ex purely in behavior. So you can see, even if somebody doesn't explicitly know, you can watch how they're acting, and you can see uh, that you know that information there in, in their behavior. I find it interesting, though. Um, like, what does it mean that ordinarily we think we have to learn something before we can use that information to help our our actions? But in but in reality, we seem to know things unconsciously and act them out before, before we ever come to understand what it is we're acting out. And some people never, never come to understand it at all. Um, it's like, it's like I, I use the word incarnation, but, but I mean like the material world, because I, I feel like, you know, God on earth is kind of what the earth is. So, the, so it's like the incarnation gives an embodiment to information. So to put it differently, it's like the material world gives it a representation, an embodiment to potential, to God. Does that, does that make sense? It's like, it's like the material, the material world is, is God. I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting at. Um, it seemed to be, it seems to be that, that this delimits the undifferentiated potential, that, that thing I'm calling objective reality. 
Um, and it's that it's that thing that stores information and perpetuates perpetuates it into the future. It's the, it's the material world. You know, the things in the world are basically symbols that store information. And you can say that information is latent in their behavior if they're living. But even if they're not, there's information in uh, latent in being. Okay, and that information is, it, 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 to my mind, is all the same. It's this undifferentiated information. It's it's the it's the reality of the existence of God, to put it in a different way. So I go on to say here um, that this seems to imply that information is contained in the unconscious, or perhaps that it's synonymous with the unconscious. So again, information, so this idea of potential is synonymous with the idea of the unconscious or, or the idea of God. And so that's what Jordan, Jordan calls the great unknown or chaos, which we covered in the last episode. Oh boy, so maybe, maybe we are embodied, incarnated, so that consciousness can observe consciousness, like, I, like we said earlier. So that the information that God is, that potentiality, can be known. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be information otherwise. It has to be known. What, what is information without a knower? If it can't be known, what is information? If it can't be known, what is information? God damn it, that's a good question. So it may be that material reality is um, is that information that God that God gets to know that God can know his self experience or I'll say its self experience as to not piss off any feminists. All right, um, all right. So he, he talks a little bit about John Piaget, which he which he's done already, but he does a little bit here. He's talking about the developmental psychologist Piaget, and he says he believed that imitation or acting out of an object served as a necessary prerequisite uh, to, to uh, imagistic representation to be able to portray uh, that in, in an image or a word instead of a behavior. So for you to be able to say something in words rather than just acting it out. Um, he, he's basically saying that you kind of have to act it out first before you can understand what it is you're acting out. That is really, that, that, that has connotations that are really dramatic. The idea that consciousness has to act out or embody information in order for it to know the information. That begs the question that God has to be embodied in order for it to, in order for it to know itself. And if God is information, it requires a knower. So it becomes, so the knower becomes the information that it, that it can know. Something like that. Hippy-dippy, but beautiful. Beautiful nonetheless. Um, all right, so he says, the process of play, this is still Piaget, the process of play appears as a more abstract form of imitation from this perspective. Um, so things need to be embodied so that they can be acted out. They need to be acted out so that they can be understood. Perhaps it is this acting out or imitation that forms the model or the representation that's needed to understand the object. So that's kind of what I just said to you. Uh, Piaget, Piaget goes on to say, representation can be seen to be a kind of interiorized imitation. So interiorized meaning what? Meaning something that's internal, a psychic imitation. It's exactly what I just said, to act out what something is in your mind, um, to embody in your psyche. Whew. So that's something, again, if we, if we say that God is projecting himself, itself, within itself, and, and then experiencing that representation, if that's what being is, if that's what the material world is, 
it, this is what this is another way of putting it. This is what Piaget has said. It's, he says uh, that a representation is an interiorized imitation. So what what's happening is you are pretending to be the thing that you are in your psyche. That's what God is doing. What does that mean? Um, all right. So let's see. Um, Uh, well, I lost my train here, but, um, all right, how about we shift, shift gears instead? Um, let's talk about myth because we're going to talk more about myth going forward and we've done it a little bit, uh, so far, but we've been talking about our stories, our individual stories and how we build the world and how we tell that story to ourselves, make sense of our own lives and, you know, the, the, the story of the cosmos even around us, um, that we do that in more and more and more abstract ways. And so we eventually we call that a myth. And Jordan says this, he says, as parents are to children, cultures are to adults. We do not know how the patterns we act out originated or what or what precise purpose they currently serve. Such patterns are in fact emergent properties of a long-term social interaction. Furthermore, we cannot describe such patterns well abstractly even though we duplicate them accurately and unconsciously in our behavior. We do not know what it is that we are. We watch ourselves and wonder. Our wonder takes the shape of a story, or more fundamentally, a myth. So you can imagine if you were an alien and you come down and you're watching human beings and you're trying to understand them. Um, You watch their behavior and you make uh, presumptions about why they're doing what they're doing. He's saying that this is what we do to each other and to ourselves. And then, the, and then the story that we tell about what it is we are, that's myth. So he goes on to say, myth is in part the image of our adaptive action as formulated by imagination before its explicit containment in language. So the, so the myth is the story we tell ourselves about how we adapt and change, how the world adapts and changes. He goes on to say, myth is distilled essence of the stories we tell ourselves about the patterns of our own behavior as they play themselves out in the world of experience. We learn the story which we do not understand by watching. We represent the action patterns we encounter in action. He says that is ritual, image, and word. We act, then represent our behavior ever more abstractly, ever more consciously. So he's basically saying that we're living in, in some way largely unconsciously and more and more bringing, uh, ch- changing, transforming that to a, to a more and more conscious um, and, le- and less unconscious reality. I love the way he says that. We learn the story which we do not understand by watching. And that is true. That is true. If you are new to love and you're watching romantic comedies, you're, you're, that's what you're doing. If you're learning a new trade and you're sitting there watching your, the expert you know, tear apart that motor and put it back together, that's what you're doing. You learn the story that you do not understand by watching. That may be yourself. That may be other people. Um, he goes on to say, Our capacity for abstraction allows us to take our facility for imitation one step further. We can learn to imitate not only the precise behaviors that constitute adaptation, but the process by which those behaviors were generated. This means we can learn not only skill, but meta-skill. We can learn to mimic the, the patterns of behavior that generate new skills. It is the encapsulation of meta-skill in a story that makes that story great. 
And so the, the easiest way to put this is the hero story, because this is the one that pops up, you know, the most often in myth. Is he says this, he says, look, if you're a tribal, you know, tribal people way back when, and you have a, you know, pretty short-term memory, maybe, maybe the tribal memory goes back a couple generations, and um, you have a couple of people over the, those generations that did great things. You know, you, you've got a, basically cultural heroes. You know, maybe it's somebody who, somebody who sh- showed you a new way of fishing or hunting that allowed your life to be easier. Somebody who um, created a relationship with a neighboring tribe that you've, that you've been able to flourish with. Somebody that taught you a new skill. I don't know. Whatever. There's these people that might, that might be kind of praised or held to be heroes in the culture. And what happens over time is you can take all of those stories and see what's similar about them. What did, the, what did the person do that, that people responded so positively to? What did the person do that made him a hero? And those stories get distilled into a myth, and he calls that a meta-story. So it gets distilled down to the idea of, of, a, of a great hero or a superhero, um, you know, somebody like that. So, um, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the idea of distilling something down into a myth so that you don't need the specifics of a particular hero but you can kind of learn something more important, which is not what made this guy a hero. It's what makes anybody a hero. All right, so he goes on to say, an interpretation of the reason for dramatic consequences portrayed in narrative, generally left to the imagination of the audience, constitutes analysis of the moral of the story. Transmission of that moral, that rule for behavior or representation, is the purpose of narrative. Just as fascination or, or involuntary seizure of interest is its biologically predetermined means. With development of the story, mere description of critically important behavior or representational patterns become able to promote active imagination. Activating images in episodic memory sets the stage for alteration of, produ- of uh, procedure itself. Um, so here he's talking about that these meta stories oftentimes are what they're what they are distilling is the moral of the story. It's the takeaway. It's it's not like I said what made an individual heroic, but how but what makes anybody heroic? What you can do to be a hero yourself? Like you really get to the heart of it that way by distilling it down. So he, he says that sets the stage for alteration of procedure, which just means it's going to change how you will act in the future, assuming you want to be a hero. He goes on to say, narrative description of archetypal behavior uh, or behavioral patterns are are representational schema. They are myth. So myth is a narrative description, a story about an archetypal behavior. Um, Behavior is imitated, then abstracted into play, formalized into drama and story, crystallized into myth and codified into religion, and only then criticized by philosophy and provided post hoc with rational underpinnings. And this is, this is great. This is, this is basically him saying that, look, this is how ideas and reason, uh, uh, this, is, this, this is the path that it follows. So you end up having individuals' behavior that you can observe and you can distill down to the moral, you know, that what is the behavior that's beneficial that, that we should be modeling. Um, what that does is it turns it into a myth, something abstract that's going to apply to everybody. Then it gets codified into religion. Then it becomes much more serious. It becomes a, kind of maybe a law that we impose on the followers. 
only then does it get criticized in philosophy. So only then does anybody ever say, hey, this thing we've been acting out for thousands of years that now, you know, we've, we've basically formalized into a religion that we're, for, that, you know, that we're imposing on, uh, you know, all, all of the um, faithful. Um, only then are we, are we going to take a look at it critically and see if it makes sense. Um, you know, uh, only then are we going to pick, pick, pick it apart for the holes that it shows. Only then are we going to try to rationalize why it was that we came to this conclusion. So what you end up having then is um, dogma and religious texts that are designed to explain how all of this happened. And in truth, that was the last, the, the, the holy book was the last bit of the process. It wasn't the first bit of the process, which is what, you know, conservative religious people tell you. The Bible tells you everything you need to know. You know, the Bible's the beginning. Um, no. In truth, it's people's behavior that, we've, that have been modeled and criticized and, and embodied for a long, long time for people to notice what is successful and what is not, what is, what is moving us forward and what is not, what is, what is giving us positive emotion and what is not. And, uh, and, and, and only after the fact do we rationalize it to ourselves and make it make sense in some sort of a, you know, some sort of a critical way. Um, he says something similar where he says language turned drama into mythic narrative, narrative into formal religion and religion into critical philosophy. So he kind of a similar quote. And then he goes on to say, as the process of abstraction continues and information is represented more simply and efficiently, what is represented transforms from the particulars of any given adaptive actions to the most general and broadly appropriate patterns of behavior, that of the create of creative exploration itself. So basically what he's saying is that if you distill that hero narrative, let's say, or any of them down as much as you can, that what you're going to, what you're going to get to is the one behavior that is the most important, the one behavior that, uh, that should be modeled above all else. And that is to explore the unknown, that that is the meta myth, that, 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 that's what it distills down to at its, at its absolute bottom. He says, we learn to imitate and to remember not individual heroes, but what those heroes represented, the pattern of action that made them heroes. That pattern is the act of voluntarily and successful, excuse me, that act of a voluntary and successful encounter with the unknown, the generation of wisdom through exploration. Uh, he says, every apprehensible phenomenon has a multitude of potential uses and significances. It is for this reason that it is possible for each of us to drown in possibility. Even something as simple as a piece of paper is not so simple at all. And he gives a quote from, uh, from Wittgenstein, but before I read it, I want to just tear this apart. He says, every apprehensible phenomenon has a multitude of potential uses and significances. He's saying basically anything that happens or any object, um, it basically has an infinite um, potential. Its meaning and its uses are, are infinite. Um, and he says, it's for that reason that we can drown in possibility. It's for that reason that when we encounter the infinite, when we encounter potentiality, when we're in that, uh, you know, moment in front of the predator where we're frozen or in front of Medusa where we're turned into stone, um, that that's, that's this idea of drowning in possibility, that what we're staring at is, has infinite meaning and we simply don't know how to act in that regard. And here's, here's Wittgenstein's um, illustration. He says, point to a piece of paper and now to its shape, and now to its color, and now to its number, 
How did you do it? You will say that you meant a different thing each time you pointed. And if I ask how is that done, you will say you concentrated your attention on the color, the shape, etc. But I ask again, how is that done? Whew. All right. All right. All right, now we're in the home stretch, you guys. This is the last bit here before we wrap up, and I'm, I call this section Hierarchy, Nested Stories, uh, and, and the Fractals. So Jordan is going to talk about hierarchy a lot. He's going to talk about nested stories. He talks about, um, like, things being nested inside of other things. And all of these things kind of sound to me like a description of that fractal uh, that fractal um, uh, image that we've talked about in the mystic experience many, many times before. Um, but I, I want to try to explain this um, this way. Um, I'll begin with a quote. He says, Our stories, our frames of reference appear to have a nested or hierarchical structure. We can also shift levels of abstraction. We can voluntarily focus our attention, when necessary, on stories that map out larger or smaller areas. So this is interesting, but the idea of a hierarchy, um, and again, this goes back to the original question that Maps of Meaning uh, raised about about morality, where, where they're saying, look, if you if you make a decision um, between any two things, um, and you have to if you want to act in the world, you, you're constantly making those sorts of determinations. That that is a moral decision because what you're saying when you choose one action or one thing over another is that it's better than the other thing, and that is a moral decision. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. But he's like, look, not everything can can have the same value. You know, some things are better than other things. So you, you have a hierarchy of value, you know, and, and so it's nested. You know, you've got things that are nested within other things, and some of them are not as valuable as others. Some are higher up, some are lower down. And I'll have to paraphrase a little bit, but Jordan Peterson proposes that the evaluation and structuring of our stories, um, or stories within stories, you might say, is what we mean when we say thought, when we're talking about thinking. And, he, and the quote that goes with this is, Hierarchical organization, uh, he says, this takes or even is thought. So something about categorizing, um, you know, the, and 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 uh, rank ordering things by value, that 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 whole process that I just described, that's what we mean when we say thinking. Um, so that there is again, if you're thinking, you can't avoid a hierarchy. And so this is something that gets pushed back, you know, politically from the left anyway, that whenever you have a hierarchy, you have a power game and that it's, it's all going to deteriorate down to a struggle of power in, in this zero sum situation. And this is nonsense. This is nonsense in this case. This is not what he's, this is not what he's talking about. Um, all right. So he, he proposes uh, an answer to the question of why consciousness is perceived or experienced as a single whole. Even though the brain systems, we talk about the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, how they're basically independent. And he's even said before that people who have their corpus callosum um, severed, which connects the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, that those people actually have, they have two independent consciousnesses, one on the, on the right hemisphere, one on the left. So why is it that our consciousness seems to be one? Why is it, why is it that way when the biology doesn't, doesn't really work that way? Jordan says, we only have one motor output system, after all, and therefore one consciousness. So he's saying, even though, 
you've got these competing systems and, and these nested systems, these, you know, systems within systems or consciousness within consciousness that kind of make up this complex thing that we call our consciousness, that 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 manifests itself as one being. Like I consider myself to be a conscious creature, even though I'm made up of, you know, countless cells and, you know, other, other you know, uh, organisms or whatever, or other systems. He's saying that we're structured such that we only have one motor output system. I can only act one way at a time. And that's why consciousness is, is a manifest as this whole, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to act at all. All right, so he says, at any given place and time, we are considering only a fixed number of variables as, a me- as means and ends. This is absolutely necessary, as action requires exclusion as much or more as inclusion. So, so if we believe God to be consciousness and ourselves to be a, a microcosm of that consciousness, um, Jordan would say nested, if we consider ourselves to be nested within God, let's say, um, then if the function of our psyche, uh, which, is, which is to act in the world, requires some limitation, then so too, so too does God require some limitation. And that harkens back to this idea of projection that we've been talking about and how, we, how that our psyche has this ability through representation to put up these arbitrary walls that allow us to experience the infinite and allow us to experience God, even though God is unexperienceable or, or, or again, the infinite or potential really can't be experienced. That this is how we get, we get over that, um, that God does that through this, through this nested, in this nested way of existing within a representation. And I don't know how deep that goes. Um, the mystic experience definitely does not make it out like, like there's like there's two things happening, like like there's God and a representation of God. Um, it makes it out like this fractal, infinite, infinite, crazy. You know, I can't even. I don't even know have words to describe it. It makes it out like God within God within God within God within God, and you know, in ad infinitum. It just continues and continues. That the fractal nature of things um, is an kind of an infinite nesting. It, there's no bottom to it, and there's no top to it. Something like that. All right, so Jordan explains uh, that the story of our life is composed of many smaller stories. So it's like a bunch of little stories nested into a bigger story, a larger story. He says each step or story has the same structure, but not the same content. So as all those stories above and below, basically. So this means that uh, the elements of a good story might, might be expected to mirror in some profound way all the other elements that a story like the world itself might be read at multiple levels of analysis. And, and I love this. It's just the way, like we've talked about before, like understanding your own body at different levels. You can understand your body as the, the level of your direct consciousness, uh, you know, the, the level of your body and psyche. You can think about you, you at the level of the, um, of the cell, at the, le- at the level of the organ systems, at the level of the... Um, of the of the uh, the chemicals, or even of the atoms, you can look at yourself in all of these different um, levels of analysis, and uh, and you can even consider yourself completely differently in, in every single one of those ways. In, in truth, though, that you are all of those things nested inside of a larger thing. And again, I, I can't help but I can't help but say if if the stories we tell about our lives are that way, and our 
our our material you know biology is that way um that this is just another fractal example it's just another thing saying uh you know that all of these components of our lived experience are like that they're they're fractal they're a reflection of of one another at different levels whatever that means um, and that beautiful complexity is what is what constitutes the world that is order, the world that we live in. All right, Jordan says, reality is made up of nested interpretations that give determinate form to objects and to the valence of those objects. Every interpretation, however, is subject to transformation at every level. This constant and necessary transformation in conjunction with the fact of at least transient stability makes up the world. Our stories are nested. One thing leads to another. And hierarchically arranged. Love is more important than money. Within this nested hierarchy, our consciousness, our apperception, appears to have a natural level of resolution. The default resolution is reflected in the fact of the basic object level. So here he's just saying, like as an example, to say that our stories are nested, he says, like, look, like there's cause and effect. One thing leads to another. This little story brought you to the, to the next story. And that they're hierarchically arranged, that they're rank ordered. So you could say that love is more important than money, that, that that's something that we do. We, you know, we, we're going to place a higher value on certain things than other things. And it's not racist and it's not discriminatory. It's, it's done necessarily because we cannot act equally. Um, to, towards all things, or we couldn't act at all. And he says that this hierarchy basically constitutes the way that we perceive the world. He says our, our apperception, it affects our level of resolution, how, how, we, how our consciousness sees the world, that this nested hierarchy is, how, is, is sort of the lens through which we do that. All right, he says, uh, a given stimulus is obviously not evaluated at all possible levels of analysis simultaneously. This would constitute an impossible cognitive burden. It seems that the cortex must temporarily fixate at a chosen level and then act as if that is the only relevant level. So this kind of provides a, a biological explanation for why reality seems to exist only at the level of the self, let's say, and not at all the, all the various levels simultaneously. Although maybe that is true, and you know, we really don't have a way of, of experiencing that either. Um, so Jordan says, through this maneuver, the valence of something can appear similarly fixed. It is only this arbitrary restriction of data that makes understanding and action possible. So, so without arbitrary restrictions, objects would be infinitely complex. So without arbitrary restrictions, these are those walls that we talked about, the representational walls that we, that we put up in our psyches to, to break up this infinity of, of objective reality. Without those arbitrary restrict, restrictions, every object would be infinite. Every object would be God. Um, and as a result, there really wouldn't be anything at all. There would be no existence. There would be no action. It wouldn't be possible. Um, this is also true of the way that Jordan and Piaget describe uh, games or, or, or how children develop through playing games. He says that games only work if they have rules that limit the possibilities. Every game has rules, and that's what they do. They limit the possibilities so that action is possible, so that a game can be played. And if it wasn't for those restrictions, it wouldn't be possible to play that game. 
again, the, the analogy here is without those restrictions that, that, that differentiate the infinity of God, that, that, of the objective world, without these arbitrary um, restrictions that, that I, I'm going to call kind of psychic representations, the, the things that we throw up in our imagination that we use to navigate the world, um, or, or even that, that we might call uh, the world that is experienced, our subjective world. Um, they have to have limitations, or else that game doesn't exist. The game of reality doesn't exist. Um, so if God, as I believe, is potentiality, this, this undifferentiated subjective reality we talked about, uh, we can extend the, that idea to the world, to the cosmos. It wouldn't exist either without a limiting force of some kind. Um, and again, because that happens in our psyche, that limiting force is something that I, I you know, I, I don't know how to, I don't know what other word to use other than consciousness. So Jordan says both the details uh, and the big picture, so varying levels of analysis, may be considered as dwindling or trailing off into first the unconscious, where they exist as potential objects of cognition, and then the unknown, where they exist as latent information or as undiscovered facts. So what's the conclusion here, guys? I know that was a lot. Um, I, think, I think what Jordan is saying, or what he's implying, without actually saying it, is something strange, but something altogether mystical um, about the world that is order, the only world that we know, our subjective world, our inner world. He says that it is composed of information, information which is latent in the structure of being, Call that God, call that the unconscious, whatever you want. And it is our existence, the existence of consciousness within this structure, which can use this information. What is, in, what is information after all, without a knower? We asked that question earlier. It is, um, it is used to build the world that we inhabit, you know, the cosmos. We harvest this information from the unknown, from our unconscious. We elicit that, that information, as Jordan says. Um, we elicit form and meaning and then we represent that we model that in our fantasy within our, within our psyche and that is where the world lives so to speak taking all this into consideration let's ask a question what is your relationship to this world to the world that is order how about to the latent information that, that that you've built it from? Are you just another object existing within it, disconnected from it and at its mercy? Or are you something more? What do you call that thing again that created the cosmos? God? It's God, you say, right? Hmm. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties. But I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>